Director Peter Jackson is here. While you may not have heard of his first two films, Bad Taste and Meet the Feebles, or even his 1994 Oscar-nominated Heavenly Creatures, you most certainly have heard about his latest. It is The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. It has grossed over $700 million to date and has been nominated for 13 Academy Awards, including three for Jackson, Best Film, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay. The film is based on the first of the three mythological novels by J.R.R. Tolkien. It is the story of a hobbit named Frodo and his quest to keep a magical ring out of the hands of evil. Here is a scene from the film. The language is that of Mordor, which I will not utter here. Mordor? In the common tongue, it says one ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all, and in the darkness, fight. Not with that chance. I am pleased to welcome Peter Jackson to this table for the first time. Welcome. Thank you. Thank and you. congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank yeah. you. Is this the movie you set out to make? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very interesting because as a, as a director, I, I kind of, I, I have quite a good ability at, at the very beginning when we're first starting to write the screenplay I have quite a good begin uh, ability to imagine the film in my head like you know even the very first page of, of, of the script as we do it I can start to imagine the camera angles the music I can start to feel how the film's coming together and I sort of have this imaginary film starting to be put together and that's right back at the beginning and uh, I mean this case we started this process about five or six years ago and then what happens during the course of the movie is that this this film that's playing in my head always gets modified because as you design the sets you know then the sets that we've designed replace the ones that I originally sort of imagined and then as the actors come on board their faces put fit into the characters I imagined and so my little internal movie is always changing and being updated so that um it's it's you know it always ends up better everything every time my film in my head gets changed it's, it's improving all the time because <laughs> oh, all these all these other people yeah. are coming on board and giving their input yeah. in, in, into it and so um yeah I mean I I'm incredibly proud of the film I I you know it's well I mean the reality is it's probably better than what I, what I imagined because I you know I imagined something at the beginning I didn't imagine Ian McKellen playing Gandalf at the beginning you know and when he comes on board wow and Elijah Wood and all the other actors it's um, so it's exciting. Creatively, it's exciting because you, uh, there's always new things happening when everybody else gets involved. Yeah. What's amazing about it is that you have made three films in one yes. span of time. Yes. You know. Yes. That, uh, that was, it's really, you know, a tribute to New Line Cinema, to Michael Lynn and Bob Shea, because they, they've taken a gamble that I think will probably go down in history as one of the all-time you know Hollywood gambles because yeah. you know nobody nobody has ever said we'll pay for three films three big budget expensive complicated films yeah. we'll shoot them all together before we release the first one because we don't even know if the first one's gonna succeed or not at the box office I mean it's a hell of a risk and a hell of a burden on I mean a hell of a weight for you to carry yeah yeah it, it, it has been I mean there hasn't been a single day while we were shooting that we that we didn't feel that weight that you didn't feel the weight of, we've got a oh, lot the, riding on this. Oh, the responsibility. I mean, the fate of the studio, to some degree, we were told, was, was riding on these movies, that um, it, would be, it would have disastrous consequences for the studio, for the company, if these films didn't work, or the first film didn't work, in actual fact. Did you, as you were making these, I mean, can we expect the second and third 
the first is out, there's a lot of mm. good reviews when you look at all the nominations, mm. and people mm. are saying terrific things about it for mm. the most part. Mm. Do you think the second film and the third film will match that? I mean, well, they, they that's have, the other they, side. They have to be better, don't, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> they have to be because that's sort of the way it needs to work. Um, it, it's an interesting process because what you have to imagine is that I, I'm not really in a position now as as the you know the director of the Fellowship of the Ring, which was released at Christmas, and, right. it's, and it's been, as you say, reasonably successful. I, I'm not in the. <laughs> I'd say reasonably successful. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm not really in the position to sort of say, okay, now I'm about to start working on the next film, so I've got to now do this, this, and this to the next film to make it bigger and better. And where we had this in the first one, we're going to have ten of those in the second one. You know, yeah. because I'm not really in that position because they're, they're all filmed. They were all done at the same time. Yeah. So. To some degree, even though we're editing, we're, you know, we're cutting the movies and we're still able to do a yeah. little bit of creativity and shaping and things, there's definitely more opportunity for that. Um, the, films, the films are what they are. The three of them were shot together at the same time. They're a continuation of the same yeah. story. So if you like the first one, you should like the second one. Yeah. And even more we, so we made, because you'll be more into the we, story. We made it at the same time, yeah. yeah. They were all filmed together, you know. So we were, we were just on, on a roll <laughs> yeah. going through this great sort of essentially nine-hour story. Now, where, what's the status of second and third? Well, there, there's rough cuts of both those films. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen them both, and they're very, very, very rough form. And what we're doing now with the second one, because that's where all, all of our attention is, is on the second movie, um, and I'm about halfway through doing a proper kind of fine cut. Here you are at 18 years old mm. in New Zealand, mm. English parents who moved to New Zealand, yep. uh, lived there, early on began to make little 8mm films. Yeah. At 18 years old, you read Torkin, yep. right? Yep, I did, yeah. At 34, mm -hmm. you start making the movie. Yeah, 34, 35. Began, yeah, right, yeah, 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 the yeah. whole process. Yes. You're now 40, 41? 40, yeah. 40. Yeah. yeah. With, You're with investing the, with a lot the, of your time. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's going to be eight years. But from the beginning to, to the end of the third movie, when we release it next Christmas, um, it's, it's going to be eight years. But I, well, I mean, I, I mean, I think they're eight years incredibly well spent. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I, I wanted to be a filmmaker, as you say, ever since I was a 10-year-old. And, you know, The Lord of the Rings, but for somebody that loves escapist cinema like I do, that loves visual effects, that loves films that sort of transport you away and that's what I want to do with my life. I mean I'm very very lucky I'm one of those people that get to do their hobby as a career yeah. basically. And knew early when you wanted to do. Yeah and, and but I, you know I, I regard myself as being incredibly lucky and especially you know I, I mean The Lord of the Rings is the ultimate project. I mean why wouldn't I want to spend eight years on three <laughs> Lord of the Rings films? I mean wh why not? Yeah. It, it is the wonderful book to adapt. It's fantastic. Yeah, but then uh, are you going to go through the rest of your life people saying how can you top this or do you have to do something dramatically different? By Dr dramatically different I would say. I mean I don't have a career plan but I I mean people are asking me the, the common question that I'm getting asked now quite a lot is um, wow this you know they see me as a, as a as this New Zealand filmmaker that's always lived in New Zealand, yeah. and I've made you know low budget films, and, and now everybody says, "Wow, well, after this, it's going to open all these doors, and you've got the key to the kingdom, and you're going to be able to come to Hollywood and rule Hollywood." And I, I actually just want to stay in New Zealand, <laughs> yes. make, making <laughs> yes. my stuff down in New Zealand. So, in a funny kind of a way, without wanting to sound sort of ungrateful, <laughs> um, this, 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 I don't see this film really as opening up particularly doors that I care yep. to go through. You, you know, that I, I sort of, I'm an independent filmmaker. I have my own little setup in New Zealand that I've mm. been making films down there for 10 or 12 years and I'm 
very, very happy to continue. Probably, probably make it a little bit easier to get finance for films, however. Yeah. You mentioned New Line for a second there and the bet that they're making on this. Yeah. The interesting thing is, I understand it, you always wanted to make the three of them at one time, but you presented the idea to Bob Shea to do two, hoping that he would bite and say, why not three? Well, there's a there's a there's a long that a legend or there's a longer story behind that. If I, I'll try to give you the short version of the long story, if uh -huh. you like, the history of it, because it is very interesting. I mean, people don't realise really how close this film came to not happening, at all. It was originally a Miramax production. Um, we started developing it with Miramax in about 1996. You know, quite quite about the rights in '95. Saul Zance had the rights. who was a very famous producer. Yeah. Made English Patient. English Patient, and. We, we called Harvey Weinstein and said to Harvey, you know, uh, we'd love to, love to do this. We had a first look deal with Miramax, which meant we had to take any, any project that we wanted to them. So we called up Harvey and said, we'd love to do this. He said, who's got the rights? And we said, Saul Zance. And he said, well, that's great because I'm making The English Patient with Saul right now. And he owes me a big favor because the English patient was about not to be made. made, and then Harvey stepped and grabbed it. So, so that was our first piece of great luck: is that Harvey happened to be working with yeah. Saul, and Saul had the rights. So, so that legal stuff happened, and and, and the rights became, you know, became available to Harvey. Um, and so we started to develop it with Harvey. We pitched the idea of three films, and Miramax didn't really want to take that risk, but we agreed on two, two Lord of the Rings films. You know, two and a half hours, like five hours total, which we thought we could we could adapt the book the three books in that way. So we did a screenplays. We developed it over the course of about two years. Um, at the same time as writing the scripts, Miramax were also putting a lot of money into basically pre-production on the film. We hired a team of 30 or 40 people. We were designing the movie. We were location scouting. We had visual effects being done. We had monsters being made. Um, <laughs> computer work was happening. A lot of money was, was spent. In fact, it was about a $20 million got spent during this time. And then we ran into a real snag because by the time we'd finished writing the screenplays and doing a lot of the, the development, we were able to come up with a much more definitive budget of what it was going to spend. And it was going to, at that point, these two movies were going to cost about 130, 140 million to make. And Harvey said, well, I, 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 have, uh, I only have an ability to go up to 75 million on a film. And of course, Disney owns his company. So I, I understand, I'm not entirely certain, but I do understand that Harvey went to Disney and he asked permission for, to spend extra money to make these two films and was refused, refused that permission. So Harvey was in a real jam and he turned to us and said, look, you know, I've got a problem. I, ca I just cannot go ahead with these two films, so why don't we just make one? And we said, so you want us to make the first one first and release it, which is sort of the common sense approach. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then if it's successful, we'll go make the second. And he said, well, no, no, I, I, I just want to make one Lord of the Rings film, so we've got to figure out a way to, to, to lose all the story and to compress mm -hmm. it all into one mm -hmm. movie. So we didn't really feel comfortable with that um, at, at all, in fact. Um, we just felt it was a d recipe for disaster, but that, that anybody that had read the book that went along to a movie titled The Lord of the Rings was just going to be was going to be disappointed, was going to be shocked at what this, this yeah, two-hour right. version was actually going to be like. And we just said, w w why would you do that when it was guaranteed to disappoint? But anyway, Harvey had no real choice, and he said, this is the only thing I can do. So we, at that point, we literally walked away from the project, and we said to Harvey, we, we can't be involved in this anymore, and we'd been on it for two years. So it was a fairly, we were over, we were over here in New York and had this, had this rather gruesome meeting at the Miramax office and just said, look, you know, we, we can't be involved. And Harvey said, I mean, he understood. It was like we were both in a jam and mm -hmm. Harvey's heart was always in the right place, but he could, he had nowhere to go. 
And we, um, so we got on the plane back to New Zealand, it's like a 20 hour flight, and we felt now that we'd come to the end of The Lord of the Rings, which was a tragedy, it's, it's because you put so much emotional investment into these, these things when you work on them for, for so long. And, uh, and our agent, Ken Cammons, in the meantime, while we were flying that 20 hours back to New Zealand, he'd called Harvey and he said, look, you know, Peter and Fran, who's my, who's my partner, they've been working on this for two years, Harvey, you've got to give them at least a chance to, to, to take this somewhere else. If you can't do it, there may be someone who can. And so Harvey, because Harvey was prepared to hire other filmmakers to make his single film version, because Harvey had spent 20 million and he wasn't able just to kill it. He, he was now going to have to find someone else to do mm -hmm. his, his, mm -hmm. his movie so he could at least get, get his investment back. And so Harvey said, okay, there's, there's, there's two conditions. One, it's got to be the two films. Somebody's got to agree to do two films, because I'm offering to do one, so somebody's got to agree to the two. The second condition is who, if somebody wants to do it, they've got to write me, they've got four weeks from now to write me a $20 million check. So we, we were now faced with the job of having to go to LA, to Hollywood, <laughs> and try and convince somebody to write Harvey a $20 million check and, and finance two Lord of the Rings movies. So we, um, we, were in, we arrived in New Zealand with this news and we had four weeks. And so we had all this visual material, all our designs, our, our, our creatures, we had a lot of stuff. And rather than just go into a Hollywood office and just like do a verbal pitch, we thought we've got to make use of all this wonderful visual material that we have because it was, it was pretty amazing. And so we decided to make a documentary. <laughs> um, and so for the first week of our, of our four, we got a video team in, we interviewed ourselves, you know, talking about The Lord of the Rings. It was like a, ma a making of The Lord of the Rings <laughs> yeah, but, that's what I said. Uh, before it got made, you yeah, know. Right, right. And, but the interesting thing with that tape is that, is that we're all trying to sit there and be really positive and confident. And I'm being interviewed and I'm saying, you know, the most wonderful thing about Tolkien's story is that, but, but we're all dying inside because this is like the project is going <laughs> to, unless this works, it's all over and, and we're hoping and we're, but we're trying to not show that and we're all, you know, and so we did all this lovely photography of these these monsters where we've turned them on turntables and lighting them and we did it all pretty switch it ended up being 36 minutes long and so then we get them in week number two we go to LA and we um we, we now have to hit Hollywood without without with our videotape and try and get someone to, to do this and, and 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 by the time we arrive in LA um our agent has gone through every studio every producer who could possibly raise money and he's virtually been turned down by everybody even without seeing the tape without meeting us people just say no we don't want to do it you know Lord of the Rings two movies 20 million dollar check to Harvey no 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 and, and by the time we arrive in LA there were only two meetings there were only two people who wanted to even meet, meet with us um, everyone else had passed and the first one was Polygram um, who, who saw our tape and they loved it and they said, look, we, this is fantastic, we really, really want to do it. And we thought, great, great. And then they said, but our company, this was 1998, and they said, but our company is being sold. Polygram was now being, up, was up for sale. And they said, there's no way we could do this until the sale process is complete. And we said, well, we've got like, you know, two and a half weeks. How quickly is it going to get sold? And they said, oh no, it's going to be months, months and months away. So that we walked out the door, that was a no-go. had one last shot. New Line, New Line Cinema was our last shot, who had agreed to have a, have a meeting. And at this point, we were, we were worried that we were going to be known as this failure. So with New Line, we, we tried to create the impression that we were really busy taking meetings. And so 
you know, we had this one meeting, but like we'd phone up New Line and say, meeting, uh, meeting at New Line, 10 o'clock. No, 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 we can't do 10. We've got a meeting. No, 1 o'clock. No, we're busy at 1. How about 3.30? And we tried to create this impression that we were kind of really <laughs> being sought after. And we were going, because, I mean, it's terrible, isn't it? But, you had nothing. We had nothing, no. So we turned up, we turned up at our New Line meeting. And um, Mark Odesky, you know, who's an executive at New yeah. Line, who, who, who was an old friend of mine, in actual fact, and I knew that he was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Mark had set it up, and Mark was, Mark was really excited about the idea of doing this. And I met Bob Shea, who I'd known earlier, and Bob is a really straight guy, so, you know, we knew we'd get, you know, we'd get some sense from Bob of what he, he was going to do. So we sat down, he, um, he, he had a private meeting with me first, and he said, look, Peter, I just want to, before I see your tape, I just want you to know that if we don't do this, I, I want you to know that you're always welcome to bring projects to me in the future. So I thought, oh, well, this is the classic yeah, right. kind of... He's setting you up for the fall. setting me up for the fall. So we went and we put the tape in and, we, and he plays it. I mean, I mean, he just sits there completely silently, just watches it, and, and we're just nervous. We can't stand it. He's in the, we're in the same room as he is, and he's just watching, watching for 36 minutes. And as the tape comes to an end, he says, I, I, I don't get it. And I, and I thought, oh, okay. And he turns and he says, I don't get it. Why, why would you be wanting to do two Lord of the Rings films? It's three books, isn't it? Shouldn't, shouldn't it be three films? <laughs> and, and I thought, what's he, what's he saying here? What's he, what's he saying here? And he said, um, he said look, uh, look, we're interested, yeah. but we're basically interested in three movies. And, and, and that was... That, I, I, I mean, hope you got up and went over and kissed him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I felt like hugging him, yeah. I mean, it was unbelievable. And now, you know, it, th these sorts of stories don't really happen. Yeah. Not, so you left there right. saying, I want to make three movies, we can go back to New Zealand. We went back to New Zealand, the, the Miramax and, and, and New Line lawyers got hammering it out, right. uh, Harvey got, got his check. Right. And we Plus were, he got 5%. We were on board, yeah, no, Harvey's done fine. And a title and, um, as executive producer or yeah, something well, like he, that? Well, he deserves it. I mean, Harvey was there at the very beginning and, and gave us a lot, lot of support when we needed it. So. Okay. It, you know, it, it's sort of, it's, every, everybody's come out okay. Okay, so all of a sudden, it's a go. You're going to yes. spend how much money for three movies? Well, at that point, you see, we only had budgets for two movies, so then we had to write, rewrite the scripts. So we had to throw out our scripts, we had to re rewrite the scripts, because the scripts for three films is a very different structure to two. So that was, a, that was another 18 months. I mean, this is now getting into 1999. They budget out at, uh, they ended up budgeting it out at 270 million, because we were able to put a whole lot more stuff back into the movies that we'd cut out. And then... And, you know, and, and, and we went into basically into production in October 1999 to shoot all three movies, $270 million budget, uh, 274 shooting days, um, and we got going. Talk about casting. The casting for The Lord of the Rings was vital. It was vital on, on several levels. Um, it was vital, one, because it's one of the most beloved books of all time, and everybody that reads that book has a mental image of these people in their minds. And, and we do, too. I mean, we're, we're fans of the book. So we were determined to get the casting right, that we had to, to cast people that felt like they had stepped out of the pages of the book. We didn't want to cast big stars because that is distracting. I mean, I think if, you, if you're taking... If you're taking characters from a famous book and bringing them to life, you don't want a, a, a huge superstar face because it, the book and the, the star kind of don't kind of gel. We, we, we wanted wonderful actors who are like chameleons who could just bring the characters from the book to life first and foremost. Secondly, it was important because we were asking our cast to come down to New Zealand where we were shooting for 15 months. I mean, really 18 months because they had to come down six weeks ahead for rehearsals and... Yeah. 
So we're saying, we were asking all of our actors to leave their, their homes, their families, or bring their families with them, come down to the strange country that had never been to for 18 months. So we wanted to make sure that we were casting people that really were prepared to, to commit to that. And, and the byproduct of that, which, which I, I have come to realize, I didn't really think about it at the time, is that the spirit of the cast was wonderful because I realized that none of these people were actually making a job decision. They, were, they weren't making a, what's, what's my next film going to be? Oh, I think I might just do this film. You know, I've got three or four I can choose. I'll, I'll do, I'll do Lord, Lord of the Rings. I mean, because it, it wasn't that. Normally, they'd be on a movie for three or four months. I mean, the decision to come to New Zealand for 18 months was like a lifestyle decision, mm. much more so than just a gig. And so we ended up with actors down in New Zealand that basically, as a, as a, as a group, felt, well, we're not going to spend this amount of time on a single project without ending up with something we're really proud of. You know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. and that wouldn't happen on every movie. It's like, this was not a job. This was like 18 months. Mm -hmm. I, I want this to be great yeah. because I'm here for 18 months and they just arrived. They just yeah. said, let's get going. This is, we want this to be great. And, and that, that, that lasted through the entire shoot. And I actually think that spirit is a spirit of it's the spirit of putting your heart and soul into something. Um, and that, I think that shows on the screen. Yeah. I think that really comes yeah. across on the screen. And New Zealand as a place contributed to that for you as the movie. Well, New Zealand uh, as a location for The Lord of the Rings is perfect. I, you know, I, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm a New Zealand filmmaker and I, I live and work there. So for me, it was easy. But I think that if any filmmaker anywhere in the world was doing The Lord of the Rings, New Zealand would be like right up on the location. Because it's an unspoiled Britain, so to speak. Yeah. Well, you know, Tolkien, I mean, the Middle Earth that Tolkien wrote about was, is not, is not a, 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 on another planet. It's, 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 it's a mythic prehistory of Europe. Yeah. And so these sort of New Zealand has these unspoiled kind of primitive um, European landscapes, essentially. Yeah. All right, yeah. talk about the casting. First of all, we'll see in a minute Frodo, but Elijah Wood. Yeah. The most important casting? The, the most important casting. You know, I mean, you know, t the, the problem with getting the casting wrong, if you, if you cast a Frodo, for instance, that sort of irritated you, you know, and you always see movies where somebody <laughs> annoys you, bugs you, <laughs> yeah. then, then we, were, we, were not, we were not sort of spoiling one film, we were spoiling three movies. <laughs> yeah. So the ca you know, it was a lot, of, lot riding on it. And Frodo is a very, very important character in the movies, but he's also an incredibly difficult character to play and to cast, in actual fact, because I, I always regard Frodo as being the everyman character. That you know, when you read the book, this is like from the book. That when you read it, I think you sort of channel you channel a lot of your imagination through the character of Frodo in the book, because he's experiencing the journey. He's the innocent. He's like us. I mean, we're like the hobbits, really. And and um, he's going these places. He's going places that we'd never want to go, and he doesn't want want to go. You know, and yet he's having to deal with it. So, so he's. So in a way, Frodo is the audience of the film, and those sorts of characters are, are fiendishly difficult for actors to play because they, they, they have no gimmicks, you know, they have no quirks. So tell me why Elijah. Well, I, I, I'll tell you about Elijah. I mean, we, we were convinced that Frodo was going to be an English actor because we wanted the Hobbits to basically be English, as, as Tolkien really wrote them. Um, so we went to London and we started auditioning. We didn't, we did, we, we we couldn't think of any actor to play Frodo. I mean, you know, names like Ian McKellen immediately came sure. up for Gandalf right. and Ian Holm for right. Bilbo, but but Frodo we had nobody in mind. So we thought it would be an unknown English actor, young young kid. So we went to England. We auditioned. We were in London auditioning for about a month, and we had I, we'd probably seen about three hundred Frodos, <laughs> young English actors. Um, there were two or three that were okay, but nothing. 
nothing magical, you know, because Frodo had to be magical. 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 Yeah. And every time the casting room door opened and, and some young, nervous, nervous young actor would come in, you, 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 were, you were saying, is this going to be Frodo? And you'd sort of know within 10 seconds that it wasn't, yeah. really, it wasn't really Frodo. And it was, it was a worry, but we were plugging on. And then our casting director, John Hubbard, um, said to us one day when we arrived to do some more casting, he just said, oh, a package has just come in the mail. And we said, oh, yeah. He said, it's from Elijah Wood. And, and, and it was a videotape, a VHS tape, just in a, in a package sent to London. And I, I had heard Elijah, Elijah's name, but I'd never seen a, a film he'd done. So actually, I actually had no face for Elijah. I didn't know what Elijah look, looked like. But Fran Walsh, my partner, had seen The Ice Storm. And she said, oh, no, no, this, this, this kid's pretty good. He's, 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 he's an American, but he's got this really interesting face. And so we put the videotape in. And Elijah had, um, basically, he was in L.A. And, and heard that we were in London and weren't going to come to L.A. And so he'd, um, he, he really wanted to, to, to get this role. And so he'd, had hi he'd hired a dialect coach to teach him. This is all what he did himself without us even knowing about it. Hired a dialect coach, teach him an accent. He'd gone to the local costume hire and he'd got this sort of cheesy kind of hobbit costume on. He'd gone up into the trees somewhere up um, behind his house with a friend and he'd just videotaped his own audition where he was because he didn't have our script, so he was reading from the book, and he was like doing Frodo parts from the book. And, and I just put, I put this videotape in, and um, literally, I mean, not having known who Elijah Wood was really, I just thought, he's wonderful, he's absolutely great. Bingo. Bingo. And so Elijah, Elijah cast himself. Roll tape. Here's a scene in which uh, Frodo is being chased by the evil dark riders, and he decides to leave the Shire. Then there is Ian McKellen. Yes. Now Ian was quite different to Elijah. Ian was a, a, a name that we had right from the very beginning, where, where we thought about all the perfect Gandalfs. Who would be the perfect Gandalf? It was fantasy casting. We, could, we, we were the lucky people that could sit there with the Lord of the Rings and say, now uh, if we were making a movie, who would we cast? Because we were, we were making a movie and we had to cast somebody. So um, we, um, Ian McKellen was it from, from day one. For, for us, I mean, we, no we, other we, choice. No, no, we no never, we, Anthony Hopkins. No, no, no. Anthony Hopkins, we thought would be interesting for Bilbo, but then, um, but then we, Ian we Holm. But, but we fell in love with Ian Holm, and we we loved, loved the idea of Ian Holm. Why McKellen? We wanted obviously an English actor. We wanted an English actor of a certain stature, and we wanted somebody who would bring Gandalf to life um, in a way that that didn't. He's, he's, a, he's a chameleon, Ian. That's what I love about Ian. Is he, he's not an actor who, who puts his own stuff right in your face when he's playing a role. He, he absorbs himself into this character and, he, and out comes the character, emerges. And that's the sort of actor that we wanted. And we wanted somebody, obviously, who can... I mean, the Shakespearean quality of Ian, as his experience, was perfect for, for Tolkien. Because Tolkien's language is kind of heightened. And it's not easy. It's not easy to say the dialogue that Gandalf has to say in the film without it sounding a bit cheesy. So, so you know, you need a great actor to make it sound wonderful to go from the cheesy to the to the, to the great in one in one uh, easy step. And so, Ian is obviously wonderful at um, just being able to to be uh, 
wonderfully believable. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. And I tell you what, I mean, people, people should just realise how absolutely difficult this role was to play because I, I have a huge dislike of wizards in films and books. I mean, wizards are not great characters. And The Lord of the Rings, obviously, my biggest problem was the fact that you have a wizard, which you, who, in a sense, in one way, they've become cliches. They've become cliches since The Lord of the Rings. I mean, Tolkien created this character, and since then, and since the 1950s, everybody has obviously just done versions of Gandalf and all sorts of different things. So this is the prototype, but nonetheless, it's the long beard, it's the pointy hat, it's the staff, it's what you, you know, imagine a cliched wizard to be like. And so Ian, Ian and I worked very, very hard to, to basically play him not as a cliched wizard at all, but to take, to take a lead, obviously, from Tolkien, because Tolkien had, had, Tolkien had designed a character in Gandalf who is an ancient spirit, a very powerful spirit, an immortal who never dies, who's been sent down to Middle-earth to combat evil, to help fight this evil. And he is, for some reason, I don't quite know why, but he ends up being put in the body of an old man. So you've basically got a, a mind which is, which, is, which is young and vibrant, and, and, but you've got, he's stuck in this old carcass and with creaky bones, and he doesn't have the energy that he really wants, and it's frustrating for him being stuck in this body. And that, that, that leads to all sorts of interesting possibilities. You said about this that you wanted the costumes and the actors to give the audience a sense of authenticity. Make it real. Make it real. That's, I, th I think that was important because the fantasy genre, in terms of movies, I don't think has ever really succeeded wonderfully well. I mean, there's been some movies that have been okay, but they, uh, Hollywood seems to lack confidence in this particular genre for some reason. Um, and, you know, you can name, over the last, hundred years of cinema, you can name the great westerns and the great spy movies and the great cowboy films, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean the great musicals, you know, but the great fantasy films, I mean, it's a genre that's, that, that, that no one has really kind of come to terms with very well, I, I believe, and, uh, I, and, and I wanted, I, th I thought, well, we need to reinvent the genre a little bit. And I just thought, well, you know, why don't we just take our lead again from Tolkien? I mean, it's there in the book. He, he wasn't writing fantasy. I don't believe in the 12 years that he was sitting down in his little attic room up in his house writing this thing in, in longhand. I don't believe for a minute he thought he was writing a, writing a fantasy story. Not one minute. He was a, an Oxford professor who was, who dedicated his life to a love of mythology, um, ancient mythology which is not fantasy, There's a, it's very different, mythology is different to fantasy. And, 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 and Tolkien always mourned the fact that England's mythology had been eradicated by the Norman invasion in 1066. The mythology is based on oral stories that are passed down from generation to generation before the printing presses. And, you know, the Greek mythologies of the Trojan horse and Achilles and things, they survived through the years. The, the great Norse sagas survived through the years. 
But England, when the Normans invaded, whatever stories had been nurtured were eradicated by that. that and, and so England's mythology was like medieval stuff like Robin Hood and King, King Arthur. I mean, it didn't go any further back than that. So, so Tolkien thought he wanted to create a mythology for his country, for England. And this is what he did. He spent his lifetime doing the stories of Middle Earth and the saga, you know, and, and, and the history, the history of the mythology, the, 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 the concept, because he always says, he said, I imagine this took place in England and Europe um, some seven or eight thousand years ago. This is this, and, and so we thought, okay, okay, so what we'll do with the movie is we will, we will pretend that this is history, it, it, just as if we were making an ancient Roman film or making Braveheart, you know, about Sir William Wallace, you know, you know that we'll pretend that, that these guys existed, it's history, it was real. That that let's let's make the movie with that weight of authentic of authenticity in the designs, the look, the performances, everything. So, so that um, that was our mantra. You said that you made the movie. Uh, that you didn't make the movie that Tolkien would have made, but you made the movie he would have enjoyed. Well, I, I hope he would have enjoyed. It. I've got no idea whether he would have enjoyed it. I. But you had some reason to say that. I I made a, we what we tried to do with the movie. Um, because there's also a lot of themes in Tolkien, obviously, more than just the plot. There, like there, there's what? all this. Well, there's. Um, I mean, there, there, there's a lot of themes in Tolkien. Friendship. I mean, he was. Mentorship, man. He was in the First World War. He was. He was in the trenches. He he went into World War One with his classmates, you know, his school chums. And by the end of World War One, only, only two of them were still alive. Um, he saw. He saw men die. He saw friendship under fire. He understood what 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 that was like, and Frodo and Sam's relationship was very much based on that. He said he was born a hundred years too late, that he would have liked to have lived in England in a pre-industrial age in the early 1800s, before in the middle of that century the chimneys and the factories started sort of spreading across the landscape. And a lot of The Lord of the Rings is about that, the destruction of forests and the, the rise of metal and machines. He hated machines. He said that the most evil creation ever visited on this, on this world was the internal combustion engine. Mm. And um, and he hated the idea of of, of of people being slaves to the machine. Like when we turn on the TV, the, the TV is controlling us now. We're slaves to the to the television. We're slaves to to the to the motor car. The, that the ring in the movie in the book, the the ring, is 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 a symbol for the loss of free will. That the ring takes away your free will. He also and obviously. It's relevant today, but it was written. You know, this book was largely written in the 1940s. Um, one of the one of the strong themes. You know, everyone talks about the good versus evil, which is kind of true. But but in particular, he was he a strong theme of the Lord of the Rings is that if you if you turn your back on the lessons of the past, if you ignore what's gone before you, and he's obviously probably talking about post World War One Germany. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and what happened during the 30s. Um, if you turn your back, if you ignore what, what, what is happening and you, and, 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 you, and you don't learn from the lessons of the past, you know, you will suffer. Did you have some kind of mechanism, in a sense, so that you could make sure that you were true to Tolkien? Well, we, we, we didn't want to put any of our own, certainly in terms of the thematic material, we didn't want to put any of our own baggage. I mean, we had no interest in putting our messages in, into this movie, but we thought that we should honour Tolkien by putting his messages into it. And we thought he cared about things. We, you, know, he, you know, the countryside and the, and the, and, and, and the rise of evil. And, and he, he cared passionately about certain issues, and we thought what we should do to honour him is to make sure that, that, that his, what he cared about, 
ends up in the movie. That's what we tried to do. Someone, one of your actors said that there was, that the most inspired moments of making this movie came from doubt and panic. <laughs> <laughs> when, you're, when you're in any movie, you are basically, um, you, you have a feeling, once you start shooting, it's the shooting of the movie, the, the, the thing, and obviously that's when the actors are involved. You are, uh, you're, you're on a train you can't get off because the machine starts rolling, you know, upwards of a million dollars a day is being spent by this huge organization. That, and, and it often feels, it doesn't, it's not only just like you're, be, you're on a train you can't get off, it feels like you're running in front of the train laying the rails down as the things, the things coming up behind you. And, um, and you, it, it creates a, a very exciting adrenaline pumping kind of cre creative time when you know you you wake up in the morning at the end of the, uh, this day you've got to shoot this part of the movie you're not going to get any other time to do it because it's got to be done today um, and often in our case you know at the end of the day we were all getting in buses and driving to a completely different location so we didn't even have a possibility of coming back tomorrow to finish it so you just you just go there and you want to make the best film you can and and you just you just 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 it's just creative energy that happens one thing you added to this is female characters. We didn't add female characters, we expanded a little bit. We are when Liv Tyler's character was really the one that we um, expanded slightly, not, not, a, not a huge amount. In order to do, to serve an audience? Well, it, it wasn't for commercial reasons. I mean, if we were strictly commercial, you know, Liv would have been in the film from the beginning to the end. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we were, if we, because she's obviously wonderful, and the more the more that Liv lives in it, the better, really, to some degree, from a commercial point of view. But, but that obviously would not have would not have been Tolkien. No, um, the character of Arwen, who who Liv who Liv plays very very wonderfully, um, she is barely in the book. I mean, she's just such a a, a a tiny character in terms of what Tolkien wrote. And yet she, she does play an important part because she is the elf, she's an elf, she's an immortal, she, she never dies, she lives forever. And she in, is in love with Aragorn, and Aragorn mm. is a mortal man just like we are. He has a lifespan, a natural lifespan. And the, the only way that the two of them can be together is if she gives up her immortal life and, 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 becomes a, and stays with him and dies with him. And so it's a wonderful... <laughs> bittersweet love story that's there in the book and we just simply wanted to have a little bit more screen time to sort of to make mm. that work for the movie um so so we did to enhance it a little bit yeah, expand yeah. It. yeah uh speaking of aragon here's where frodo meets aragon played by uh, Viggo mortensen what do you want a little more caution from you that is no trinket you carry i carry nothing indeed i can avoid being seen if i wish but to disappear entirely that is a rare gift. Who are you? Are you frightened? Yes. Not nearly frightened enough. I know what hunts you. Who's the audience for this movie? Is it adults and kids? It's, yeah, it's a whole, yeah, it's a whole range. Eight, mm. eight to eighty. Eight to <laughs> <laughs> And beyond. <laughs> you had Final Cut? We, uh... I can't remember on our contract. I think I share Final Cut with Bob Shea, but you know it was a very collaborative process. And um, I mean, as you know, I, I just had the most wonderful experience as a filmmaker because there was never any real argument or conflict. That any time we had disagreements, we'd sit down, we'd listen to each other's points of view. New Line were very collaborative. 
And, you know, I mean, as, as a filmmaker, and as an independent filmmaker, as somebody who does pride their independence and doesn't consider themselves a studio guy, I, um, I have no complaints. I mean, uh, it, was, it was a wonderful filmmaking experience for me. Nothing, now that you look at it, mm. that you would have, I mean, do differently? Um, well, it's probably a better question to ask me in 10 years' time. Because <laughs> that's when you get a little bit more perspective on the film. I, you know, I've just finished cutting an alternative version of the Fellowship of the Ring, which was interesting because why would you do that? Well, for the DVD. Ah. Oh. Because we, obviously, theatrically, you see, we we had a lot riding on this this movie, as we discussed. I mean, you know, a huge amount at stake. The first film had to work at the box office, or it would have been. It, it would have been something you don't even want to want to want to th think about. It would have been terrible. So. Um, so we, you know, we had a lot of, a lot of, there was a lot of discussion obviously about how long the film has to be and I, and I obviously believe ultimately that films should be as long as they need to be because a film is, is something that you just have to feel your way through it as, you, as you're cutting it. And we, we ultimately, you know, obviously had a movie that was nearly three hours long which commercially is a little bit risky but nonetheless we, we everybody felt strongly that the film worked at that length. But in doing so, we certainly we cut it at a pretty quick pace, we, you know, which is one of the reasons why I think at three hours people enjoy it, because most people come out of it saying they did, it didn't feel like three hours, and I think that's that is because it paces long. But but what we what we had to uh, what we had to lose in our cutting process is a lot of little character moments where where most of the characters, in fact, have wonderful little scenes where they get developed, where we learn more about you know Aragorn and, we, and Merry and Pippin mm -hmm. and the guys, and so um, I've, we're just. I've just recently, just before I came over here actually last week, I, I finished cutting a DVD version of the film which is 30 minutes longer. So there's now a three and a half hour version of this movie, which I, which I love. I love the fact that DVD, it's not really a director's cut, because I, I consider the director's cut's the one that went out in the movies. But this is like an alternative extended mm. version um, for people that would like to see it. So and what so, would I see in that version I don't see in the original version? You'll see a lot of scenes, a lot of scenes. Um, you know, the, the, the 30 minutes of extra footage is like sprinkled all the way throughout from the I beginning. From so the it's beginning not one whole... It's, well, little, it's little character moments. There's little character developments okay. where they pause. They, it's, it's a couple of guys have a little scene together and then they move on. I mean, it's, 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 it's good. It's, it's pretty good stuff, actually. Um, and, and I looked at that and I thought, well, this is actually... This is this is good. Um, it w I don't think it would have been a good idea to release that version in the cinemas, but um, it's good that people will be able to see it on DVD. Hmm. Your fascination with the notion of escapism, yeah, is what? Well, I believe strongly um, in, in in breaking the barrier when you go see movies, and what I mean by that is that um, obviously the movie-going process is one in which you walk into a darkened theatre, you sit in a chair, and 20 feet away there's a screen and you watch the screen and when I was a kid as we all were I'm sure the same to you <laughs> yes. every time I used to go to the movies when I was 12 I'd leave my chair I wouldn't be in my chair anymore I'd just go into the screen and I'd be I'd be there I would just be <laughs> lost in the film and as an adult that doesn't happen very often to me anymore now you know and I don't know whether it's because I'm getting older or because the films aren't, aren't, aren't doing that anymore but I was I tried as much as I possibly could with the Lord of the Rings to to recreate that type of movie where it's where where the um, the audience can just get lost and just go into the movie and just become part of the film because that is um, your passion whether yeah. it's this kind of genre or not yeah is that what you think distinguishes you as a filmmaker, uh, I don't some know. Some sense of being urgent about that idea. I, 
I mean, Hitchcock, um, Hitchcock came up with my favourite quote as a, as a film quote. He, he once said, uh, some people's films are slices of life, mine are slices of cake. <laughs> and I love that. And that does, that, that's where my heart is. <laughs> slices of cake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Any, what was the most difficult hurdle to overcome? For example, yeah. you've got characters of different size. Yeah, that was pretty So you've got to figure the relationship. Yeah. And we've got them all through the movie. I mean, yeah, and they react with each other. And so everything has to be different. Yeah. The size of a glass yeah. in your hands can't be the size of a glass if I'm a little person. No, no, no. We had to build a lot, a lot of things twice. Um, you know, a lot of sets had to be built, built twice. Bag End, which is a set that we've seen in some of the um, clips here where, you know, Gandalf and Frodo are talking where the Ringo's in the fire, for instance. That, that, that was quite a large set, a whole little building, a little hobbit house. And we had to build that twice. So that when Elijah was shooting his scenes, he was in a bag end that was the appropriate size for Elijah as a hobbit. So the ceilings were quite high and there were books on the shelves and yeah. chairs that he could, he could sit in. And then for all of the shots of Ian McKellen, he wasn't in the same set. He was next door in an in a, in exactly identical set, but about two thirds of the size. So that Ian's one, he had to stoop under to get under the doorways, and if he stood up, he banged his head on the on the roof, and it was too because he's a big guy. The hobbit, he's much taller than the hobbits, and so he he didn't fit into bag in very well. But that meant that even the chairs, which were all hand carved, they had to be replicated smaller. The tables, the books, the stuff on the floor, the rubbish, everything had to be made smaller for for his version. So a lot of things had to be built built at two different sizes, and. Um, I mean, this was one of those movies where, where every single thing in the film had to be built. Yet there was not one item we could go to a, uh, a props warehouse and rent. And we had to also then think, think of the cultures, because, because The Lord of the Rings tells a multicultural kind of story. So in The Hobbits, the Hobbits are eating with knives and forks. Now, when you go to the, where the elves live, They've got knives and forks, but they, can, they have to be completely different because yeah. those knives and forks, I mean, you know, so we, we studied, we thought, now, if you're an elf and you're a mortal and you live for 3,000 years, what would, what would your knife and fork be like? I mean, what, 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 what design influences yeah. would have steered you towards coming up with, with something that you, you use to, 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 uh, to uh, cut your Brussels sprout with? So we... We had to, we put a huge amount of thought into the cultural design. I mean, Richard Taylor, Grant Major, Alan Lee, I mean, a lot of wonderful designers who fortunately are all people that have been, are up for these Oscars now, so I'm so pleased that their work has been celebrated in that way because I, I tell you, everything, thousands and thousands of things had to be made, all with a th view to creating a fictitious cultural backgrounds to, to influence the design of these different places that we go to. Answering Tolkien's question about himself, what period of history would you prefer to have lived in? I um, well, I, I'm 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 reasonably comfortable with with uh, with with today actually. <laughs> because you live in New Zealand, or <laughs> well, and I and I like TVs and things. I um, yeah. I, I I don't really, yeah. and the internal combustion engines okay. And cell phones and, and cell phones are okay, and movie cameras, movie cameras and cinemas. I mean, I I love the movies, so I guess I actually I. I would find it hard to imagine a world without movies, to be completely honest. What is that about? Oh, it's just, I mean, it's escapism, as I say. It's just the about... storytelling, too. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess, I, guess, I, guess, I guess if you were living two or three hundred years ago, you, it would be oral stories. It would be sitting around telling tales around no, the No, but they, the attraction of you and, and movies is it gives you the tools to tell, movie, tell stories. Um, 
Well, I, I love telling stories because I love having stories told to me. I mean, I love movies. I'm a movie fan. I, I, I've loved going to see movies as long as I can remember. And, uh, and through loving movies as an audience, I, I've come to love the ability to, to, to make them. Could you have made A Beautiful Mind? Um, probably. I mean, you know, in, in some respects, he Heavenly Creatures is, is, is not the same subject, subject matter as A Beautiful Mind, but it's certainly that type of mo movie. It's a psychological drama. So I've done that, yeah. In the know, bedroom you could have made Um Don't know. I mean, in the bedroom is not, not, not quite the slice of cake that, <laughs> that, that I'd be going after. Could you make King Kong? I'd love to make King Kong. Why? Uh, well, the original King Kong is my, is my all-time favorite film, the 1933 version. I saw that when I was 10, which was the reason why I, I wanted to become a filmmaker, actually, is, is seeing King Kong. That's the, the ultimate escapist film. And I, I was working on a remake of King Kong for a while, um, and then Universal, the studio who, who were doing it, uh, decided not, not, not to go ahead with it. And we'd, we had Lord of the Rings kind of in the wings at that point, so we were able to, j to uh, jump straight onto that project. But King, King Kong's great. Will you ever get the chance to make it? I, I hope so. I, I, um, it's a universal question, really. They'd have to come and uh, decide. They'd have to come back and decide to do it. But, <laughs> well, um, I assume. I assume the chances they'll do that is yeah it's accelerated I mean, because of Lord. Yeah, I mean, we've got a couple of smaller films we, we want we want to make. I mean, Fran and I are. Um, I mean, Heavenly Creatures, which 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 is a which is a New Zealand-based drama film set in the fifties, a, a true life story. That that was a wonderful experience for us. We love making that film, and so we're probably going to follow up the Lord of the Rings with a couple a couple of you know smaller, more drama-based mm. um, um, films of that sort. I mean, she's been your partner for in the filmmaking business for a while. Yeah, well, Fran, Fran and I have got two kids, um, so so, mm -hmm. so 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 we're, we're partners in life as well, and. Uh, Yep, she's, she, she and I have worked together on films for, you know, for the last 12, 12 or 13 years, yeah. When you look at movies today, you know, what do you like about the way they are going or what don't you like? I think Hollywood, um, Hollywood has is, is, is stopped taking risks. Hollywood um, has become a little bit safe and a little bit of recycling the stuff we liked. And in a sense, I, I, what I feel very proud about this particular year, um, and I really hope it helps influence films that are made all around the world, not just Hollywood, but it's actually interesting that, that down under New Zealand and Australia, with Lord of the Rings from New Zealand and Moulin Rouge from, from Australia, that, that two films from that part of the world have, in a sense, you know, they've reinvigorated their particular genres, that we did fantasy and Baz did the musical and, you know, both films are being, uh, you know, are being sort of celebrated in, in, in a way for sort of, in, for breathing new life into, into these genres and, uh, you know, I really would love to see more of that risk-taking risk and, and, and imaginative kind of just, just go for it um, happening with some of the big budget Hollywood films that are being made because that, that's, they, they seem to have forgotten how to do that a little bit. Much success at the Oscars. Thank you. It's good to have you here. Thank you. Peter Jackson, director, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, the most Academy Award nominations uh, currently seen in theaters around the country. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. One year ago, filmmaker Peter Jackson released the first installment of The Lord of the Rings series, 
While the films were initially perceived as a gamble, the risk clearly paid off. The Fellowship of the Ring earned more than $1 billion. The latest installment is entitled The Two Towers. And here is the trailer for the film. He is not coming back. The defenses have to hold. They will hold. There is nothing for you here. Only death. There is still hope. Joining me tonight is the film's creator, director, co-screenwriter Peter Jackson, and two of the stars of the film, Elijah Wood, who portrays Frodo, and Viggo Mortensen, who portrays Aragorn. I am pleased to have both of them here at this table uh, to join Peter Jackson, who was here last time a year ago when the first installment was here. Welcome, welcome back. Thank you, Charlie. Tell me about how. Tell me about this one. Uh, where, where? <laughs> <laughs> we thought like, like an hour, Well, I mean, what I like about the the f is the fact that we're doing a trilogy of films. So people have to realise this is the middle chapter. Right. But the the thing that I like about it is that it's not a sequel. It's we, we're not in a situation where the Fellowship of the Ring came out last year and it made a lot of money and everyone said, "Oh, good, let's make a second one of these." And we kind of figured out what the magic formula was and we kind of rushed off and made another one. Um, people should realise that this was this was shot as a trilogy. There was nine hours of movie, all shot at the same time. Basically, what two and a half years ago, yeah. nearly now, and that that nine hour epic story has been divided into three chapters. And um, this is the second of those three. And what's chapter two about? It's, it's well, if you've seen the first one, I assume most people have probably seen The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, the story continues, the stakes go higher, as I think any middle chapter of a trilogy should probably. The, the vice kind of clamps on our heroes and the forces of darkness are, are, are closing. And it's a little bit darker than the first one. It's a little bit more intense than the first one. Um, it sort of ups the, ups the ante, if you like. Ups the ante, meaning... Meaning that things, the, the situation in Middle Earth where our story is set, and our heroes are basically um, attempting to overcome the forces of darkness. Uh, Frodo, played by Elijah, is, has a small gold ring which he has to try to destroy in a volcano. Um, Aragorn, who's played by Vigo, has to do everything in his power to help make it, make it possible for, <coughs> for Elijah to, to destroy that ring. Um, and they just it gets kind of complicated and it gets harder for our heroes. You've already started editing the, the third, third installment. Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah the third's my favourite one, so I'm looking forward to that. Elijah said the same thing. What is yeah. it about the third that makes it so intriguing? Um, other than a, it's a conclusion. It's climactic. It's, yeah, it's, climactic. It, it's climactic. It's almost sort of biblical in, it, in its climactic sort of scale, and it's just it's sort of over the top, but in a good way. It's it's highly emotional and. Um, yeah, it's, really, it's going to be my really favorite. Emotional. I mean, I've seen mm -hmm. bits of it, and I, I can't help but cry every time. I mean, I saw one bit towards the end of the film in the span of I saw it once, five minutes later saw it again and cried again. I mean, it's so <laughs> yeah. it's heartbreaking. Wow. What oh. happens to these characters that you have grown to love over you know the course of three years? It's an off-repeated story of how you got this job. But tell us, regardless of the story, give us one again. more time. Um, yeah, it was. So one you of, made your own audition tape. I did, as a result of not wanting to be put on tape at a, a casting office against yeah. a white background. I thought I put on the, the Hobbit costume. You know, I knew he, Pete was looking for an English actor, oh. and I had to sort of basically prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that I could be English. And so I had the odds against me. So yeah. I thought I'm just going to do something completely mad and make it my own. And 
show my passion for the project and for the character that way, and it worked. You know, mm -hmm. went out into the woods and shot the scene. What did you see when you saw him? I saw Frodo. Frodo. I mean, exactly. It's, 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 it's interesting because I'd, I'd, ne I'd never seen an Elijah Wood film at that point in time. I, I hate to admit, but that's actually no, no, true. no, that's that's good. It's, it's actually true that I hadn't. I mean, out of all the movies that Elijah's done, for some reason or another, I'd never actually seen one of them. And so I'd heard of Elijah's name, Fran Walsh, uh, my partner, had had seen the Ice Storm, and she and she said, "No, no, you should really, we should really check out this tape because he's a, he's a very very interesting young actor." Yeah, <laughs> and um, and I saw and I just saw Frodo. I saw everything that we'd been looking for, and we'd maybe auditioned two hundred Frodos at the point in time. Wow. Saw his By tape. the time you saw his tape, wow. and yeah. did it decide it for you immediately? Yeah, 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 yeah. Except we didn't say that to Elijah straight away because no. we had to go and meet him. Because obviously, yeah. I never met Elijah, and you don't want to work with somebody who you kind of can't get on with. So we had to go through the process of meeting with him up in LA and having a chat. Because because mm. one of the things with casting this film was the fact that we wanted to get actors who were going to stay stay with us for 18 months because you know an actor couldn't bail out at the end of the first film they had to stay there for three movies so we wanted to make sure we we hadn't well you know basically nice people who you were going to be him. you hired him in spite of that meeting yeah they still managed to hire me even after yeah thank you pete what brought you here uh you know i've never i've never asked pete that i'm not sure i got a phone call to ask if I want to get on a plane the next day and go to New Zealand for a year and a half. <laughs> and at first, I actually said, I don't know. You know, I don't. I haven't read this book, and and I'm not sure that um, that I would do justice. You know, you don't want to let people yeah. down who are passionate and who are working hard on something. So I was tentative about it at first, but uh, I'm glad. I said yes to the challenge. Did you go immediately and read the book, or did, what did you do? I started reading it on the plane. Yeah. <laughs> did I got you finish it by the time no. you got to New Zealand? No, but I read enough, actually, to realize that it wasn't such a foreign thing to me. Yeah. After all, that a lot of, there were elements that were familiar to me. I mean, the sources for Tolkien's writing were not all unfamiliar, you know. A lot yeah. of it is based on right. Nordic mythology, Celtic mythology, sagas, fairy tales. I mean, you can, there's such a gold mine of information in there that, I mean, personally, I could relate it to Western movie archetypes, samurai movies, mm. all kinds of uh, things. And uh, so then I thought, well, this is good. I'm going to pretend I'm a Viking, you know, like <laughs> when I was seven years old. And, uh, you wanted to do that since you were seven? So, well, I didn't realize it, but obviously... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you obviously do see the movie. Yeah. <laughs> all right, take a look at this. This is a, for our first scene from The Two Towers, walking through the mountain. Frodo realizes that he and Sam are not alone. Here it is. Strangely familiar. Because we've been here before. We're going in circles. What is that orange stink? A word, there's a nasty bug nearby. Can you smell it? Yes. I can smell it. We're not alone. You're obviously making a political statement with your t-shirt. Um, I wouldn't normally, but this is sort of a reaction to I've heard a lot of people say to me, and I've read in a lot of places about the first movie and increasingly about the second one. I've seen where people try to relate it to uh, you know current situation, uh, specifically the United States uh, and their role in, in in the world right now. And um, I, if you're going to compare, then then you should get it right. You know, I I, um, 
I don't like hearing, you know, I mean, I, I played a character who's, who's uh, defending Helm's Deep, you know, mm -hmm. and um, I don't think that uh, the Two Towers or Tolkien's writing or Peter's work or our work has anything to do with uh, the United States uh, foreign adventures, you know, at this time, and it, 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 it upsets me to hear that in a way, and it upsets me even more that questioning what's going on right now what the United States is doing uh, is considered uh, treasonous, really, and how dare you say that and how un-American of you. And really, this country is, is founded on the principle that if the government isn't serving the people, you at least have the right to say, wait a minute, what's going on? And there's no questions really being asked at large about what we're doing. Whereas in, in, uh, in the two towers, you have, um, you have uh, different races, nations, cultures, uh, coming together, you know, examining their conscience and unifying against a very real and terrifying enemy. What the United States has been doing for the past year is bombing innocent civilians without having come anywhere close to catching Osama bin Laden or any presumed enemies. And, uh, you know, as a, as a distraction, we're now, uh, apparently it's a given. We're hell-bent on uh, increasing the bombing that's been going on for the past 11 years in Iraq. And I don't think that uh, the civilians on the ground in those countries look at us in the way that maybe Europeans did, you know, at the end of World War II, waving flags in the streets. I think that they see the U.S. government as a Saruman, you know? As, as a threat? Yeah, as a threat. And they're terrified and have been for a long time. And, and we are not the good guys, unfortunately, in this case. And Even though it, right after 9-11 there was an extraordinary amount of public support for the United States to do something. I'm supportive of the United States. I'm, I'm an American and, and, I'm, uh, and, I, and I, I have nothing against patriotism. But if one is going to compare, then the comparison is, is quite the opposite of okay, what's Let me being just made. make sure the comparison, only because that, you and I asked you about the t-shirt at the beginning and you said you made it yourself. Yeah. You know, the, the idea, uh, you, you, you object to the comparison of, of this film with respect to American uh, involvement with Iraq or, in or words, the Afghanistan the war or the war against terrorism to any comparison with the film as because of your well, the, opposition to American the, the idea is, you know, that com in that comparison is the United States is like the good guys in our movie against mm -hmm. the bad guys in our movie. And I think the opposite is true, unfortunately. That we're the bad guys because we well, responded to you the, know, the, the, the people the who are terrified at Helm's Deep, who are outnumbered in, in, in this incredible violence and desire to control, to destroy the people of Rohan and the rest of the free peoples of Middle Earth. Uh, to control their wills, to control their, you know, infrastructure or destroy it. That's what we're doing in these countries. That's really what we're doing, unfortunately. And it's, I'm not saying to anyone, to you or to you or to you, this is what you should believe. I'm just saying, why not ask the question, why are we doing this? Sure. You know, and I, I don't like the comparison, and I keep hearing it, so I am felt like saying something about it. You know, I'm not really um, a fan of, of the saying, my country, right or wrong. Patrick I'm, Henry. Yeah. Be, well, that's an incomplete quote, yeah. too. Um, the rest of it is more reasonable. I'm more of a fan of, of saying, um, let's make an honest effort to get it right. I think the rest of the quote is, 
if we're getting it right, let's keep trying to do so, and if we're getting it wrong, let's try to get it right. I think he says something like that. Mm -hmm. you know? I want to turn from this, but, I, but, it, but let me just stay with the idea for a second, though. Um, I mean, what would you have had the United States do after the attack uh, at the Pentagon and at the Twin Towers? I would not have uh, continually bombed innocent civilians from 30,000 feet with no possibility of being accurate and maiming and killing and destroying the lives of many more people than died at the World Trade Center. What does that do? Does bombing people make us safer? Does bombing people uh, make us more loved or appreciated overseas? Uh, will this be forgotten? Oh, well, it was just a what little mistake. What if they been able to stop Al-Qaeda and you wouldn't have had, if there is the connection, which many people think it is, in terms of the attacks in Kenya, for example, or other acts of terrorism against the United States and other countries? I just if find somehow, that, by responding, you can say, because most people believe that if, in fact, you don't respond, you're inviting more terrorism. There's nothing wrong with responding. It's how do you respond? The, the fact that one even questions the way that we responded, that that's considered uh, some kind of fifth column thinking, that it's treasonous, and that uh, you know those attacks are used as an excuse to, to um, limit civil liberties in this country, and, and, you know, and that we are coercing other countries whose populations, England, for example, I saw a poll where 70% of English people say they are more afraid of George Bush than they are of Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein, because we are, our government is incredibly violent and aggressive and rapacious and we want to control those regions. It's beyond a, 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 an attack, you know, a response and, and, and there are other ways I would think of responding. You know, we've done this before in our history, you know, even in World War II. Was it necessary to, to kill so many civilians in Dresden and places like that? Was it necessary to do things that way? You know, it's hindsight and so forth. But here we are now. We've been doing this for a year in Afghanistan. We've been doing it for 11 years in Iraq. Can we not think about this? You know, I read in the New York Times, which you have here. I look at it yesterday. The front page is, it's not even should we do this or is it a question? It's just the countdown, as if it was a holiday countdown for the, the big war and this and that. And then the science or whatever section, it's... Uh, bigger weapons and faster vehicles for the military and then photographs of the women serving it's all kind of fun and it's like the people on the ground in those countries who are the ones who are being affected they're invisible if they're not american if they're not european they don't exist they're disposable and more of them have died in the past year than died at the world trade center what does that mean anything and now just because we focus on iraq for many reasons not the least of which is oil but not only oil. and you know some kind of um, vendetta maybe that uh, our president's father has who knows what the reasons are it doesn't really matter but if you're going to suggest those two and i know we want to get on yeah and i, I think i have some respect for you for, for the candor and the forthrightness of i know i do for, of your views and invite right. you back to this program because we talk about iraq a lot here right um you know before i turn back just a dialogue about it that's all you know i mean yeah. if somebody wants to compare our movie which is just a movie yeah. but people say our movie is a pro-war movie too which i also have a problem mm -hmm. with right. yeah you, elijah you essentially agree with what i said? agree with questioning absolutely yeah. i agree with asking questions which i don't know if people do enough in that kind of honest way yeah you know 
Let me, uh, an interesting thing is you make some of these political points, the president's supporters would want me to contest each one and there's no time for me, or if you were making, well, if you were making an opposite yeah. political uh, statement in support of the president, then people from the other side would want me to contest it on, and we can't do yeah. all of that now. But um, we'll come back to some of these as it pertains to this particular movie. Yeah. Here is another clip in which you are being questioned about your presence in the right of mark. Here it is. I am Aragorn, son of Aragorn. This is Gimli, son of Gloin, and Legolas of the Woodland Realm. We are friends of Rohan, and of Theoden, your king. Theoden no longer recognizes friend from foe. Not even his own kin. Peter as a director, how is he different? He has more energy than a barrel of monkeys. <laughs> I would say. I've never. Well, I, do. I mean, I, I agree with that. But unwaning kind of unwaning energy, but focus. Yeah. You know, and a, and but on top of that, a calm that I think made made the set incredibly conducive uh, to giving out ideas and for us to perform as actors and, mm -hmm. and uh, it, he, he created an environment that was uh, conducive cr to creativity mm -hmm. on, a, on a very wide scale. Was the experience know? different than you imagined it might be because you were doing something dramatically different? You were making three movies rather than one. You had a continuum of a story. Uh, you had a company of actors that you were getting to know better than you would normally on a set. Did any of that make this experience different? Yeah all, yeah, all of those, all things. those things. Yeah, all of those things. I mean, normally you'd work on a film. You know, a filmmaker and actors would get together, and often you're working with strangers. You know, it's not it's not often that you work with people that you've actually worked with before, and um, and you come together for maybe ten or twelve weeks, and you know, by the end of ten or twelve weeks, you're just getting to know the person that you're working with. Yeah. You're just getting to understand right, them exactly. and get a, get a shorthand going, and suddenly, bang, it's it's over, and you go. Mm -hmm. And in our case, at the end of ten or twelve weeks, we've still had like more than a year year yeah. of filming still to go. So we just became a really tight knit unit. I mean, I just, I just enjoyed it. I mean, the best experience of this film has been working with people, the camaraderie that you, among the people, working you with work people with. that you respect and admire, and being collaborative. Yeah. Just, just kind of making it, it really together. You really have to create that like as well. Yeah. In terms of companies, in yeah. terms of hiring yeah. the people that that would be amiable and good to work with in terms of friendly people, you had a lot to do with yeah. that. I think. shooting it in New Zealand too. I mean, I, and I think Peter's a prime example of. You know, not I mean, not, every, but not everybody's the same. No, I mean in New Zealand. Yeah. The fact that we shot it there with a mostly New Zealand crew was, oh, I think, an inspiration amazing. to us because um, I think that, you know, you tell me if I'm wrong, but typically yeah. New Zealand, uh, for people in New Zealand, I don't know if it's a result of historically being an isolated uh, country, you know, geographically and having to make do and pull together, but putting the group first and the individual effort second, I think, comes naturally to New Zealanders, uh, which is also very much what this story's about. And I don't think that, that most New Zealanders need a September 11th or a London Blitz or an earthquake to put aside their differences and pull together for the common good. It just it comes a little more naturally to them, I think, and maybe to Australians, too, I don't know. But uh, and then that helped us a lot. You always felt that you were that it was a team effort and whenever anybody was flagging you know there was just this unspoken bond you always felt that you were, you were supported and I think this movie you know the spirit that you can feel on the screen 
beyond uh, any special effect, beyond any you know uh, filmmaking flourish, there is this gritty. Uh, let's pull our socks up, and if you can't do it, I'll help you do it, and because I know you'll help me do it. That is something that, in in large part, comes from the people we were making this movie with it's and a, the place yeah. we were making it's it a, in. It's a, it's a spirit. I think the films really do embody the spirit of, of a group of people enjoying what they're doing. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's that simple. So would you do this again? Not this particular <laughs> experience. Oh, now, that, now that's a tricky question. <laughs> no, I mean, somebody comes along and says, Peter, you did that so well. Yeah. I, by the way, have acquired the rights to <laughs> another trilogy and we want you to go somewhere for 18 months and choose your actors and saddle up <laughs> uh, not for a little while i want to i want to spend a little bit a little bit of time with my family okay but do you also want to do a different kind of movie now after you spend oh, this yeah, much sure. time i mean, I mean yeah. you're not only spending 18 months there you're spending how many years uh seven years seven years of your life yeah, yeah yeah so yeah. what is it you want do you want to go make a small movie or yeah, I, I, I want to do a few different types of films. I mean, I used to make zombie films once in my, when in my youth. <laughs> Good zombie film. I'd love to make another zombie film. Yeah. He's promised to star in my zombie I'll film. Be, I'll you, be. You, you want to be in a zombie film? You're a a zombie fan. No, no, I'm there. You, you are there. there. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> so we'll see. I, I've got a few ideas of this, but they uh, tend to be smaller movies. Smaller? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there's different skills you exercise. It's like, it's you, you know, you don't want to be stuck doing the same thing all the time. And... Um, and I'd certainly like to, there's challenges to make a very small drama film, and I'd like to have, have a go at that one day. What are the skills, that, how are the skills different? Just as a director, how are the skills different? Um, oh, it's just the size and scope of things that you've got to think about. I, yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's, it's, like it's keeping, it's keeping um, your, your eye on, on, the, on the big picture. I mean, I, I, the physical aspects of shooting for that long were okay. The mental exhaustion kind of freaked me out a little bit. I, I, I used to, uh, at the beginning of the shoot, I used to be someone who could think of 10 things at once and conduct 10 different conversations yeah. at the same time. And like, if you spoke to me on the last day of the shoot, after 18 months of shooting, I, I, I actually said to somebody, this, this must be what it's like to be 85 years old, when I can't remember what I did yesterday and I can only, I've got such <laughs> tunnel vision, I can only think of one thing at a time because I lost my ability to be kind of, to, to think of From anything more than just fatigue and stress. It was and mental fatigue, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was, you know, after a bit of rest, I was all right but um, it was kind of weird. It did grind you down. I want to get another clip in here before we go. This is where Sam, Sean Austin, tells Frodo uh, they have to escape by using the ring. Here it is. Put it on. Disappear. I can't. You were right, Sam. You tried to tell me, but... Sorry. You came in after replacing an actor who'd been, what, fired? Yeah. Fired. Yeah, yeah, is that hard? Was it difficult? Did you were nervous about it? My understanding that it was that it was more or less mutual, and I think it was uh, an unfortunate situation where someone who was too young. You know, for the part, they needed a, sort of an older dog yeah, to play this part. <laughs> and you said, I'm your older dog. It's Steps Vigo. Yeah, so yeah. I was a, uh, in retrospect, it was a lucky break. Yeah. And um, is, this, yeah. is this a career-changing role in film because it's got making so much money, because it's gotten such an enormous uh, viewership, and because of three of them rather than one of them? Well, Peter, do you think? 
uh, I mean, you know career-wise for me? Or, yeah, well, or, for you, sure. I mean, me, I, know I don't want to change. I just want to keep doing my stuff in New Zealand and do whatever I want to do. Yeah, it's, I don't want anything different. It just gives you a chance to make another one, right? You didn't screw this up, so you make another one. Yeah, and if I don't <laughs> screw up the next one, I might get, get to make my little zombie film. <laughs> <laughs> but for you, I mean, is this already, has it made a difference in terms of what you see, the kinds of things that are available? I mean, my regular everyday life is pretty much the same. What's your I'm regular a, everyday life like? Well, I guess you could say I don't get out much. <laughs> but, <laughs> but as far as something that, I don't, you know, uh, that I have noticed, and I'm sure you have, and probably you have too, is that there's these big piles of fan mail that you, yeah. you now get, and I'm sure everybody, it's just a function of being yeah. part of a popular movie. And, um, you know, I've gotten, finally, <laughs> I've gotten another job that I would not have gotten, I'm sure, if it weren't for being part of the mm. Fellowship of the Ring, you know, it's purely because of that. Otherwise, someone's not going to take a chance on you uh, in a leading role. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. But otherwise, I haven't yet noticed much mm. What's your next role? Uh, it's a movie called Hidalgo. It's a, based on a true story from mm. 1890. Elijah, how about you? Uh, I've sort of the same in terms of what's happened. You know, I think that there is an increase in things that come your way, but nothing crazy. And in terms of my daily life, that hasn't changed at all. But I, it's mainly of my own effort. I don't stop. You know, I, I don't stop doing the things that I would normally do on a daily basis because more people recognize me or anything mm -hmm. like that. You had a lot of people, Peter, come up. I mean, I'm especially thinking of Harvey Weinstein and Bob. And saying, you know, they, they, as you and I talked about before, we went in mm. at length about this relationship. It's a little bit like the war. Wasn't it? <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I mean, they must be deeply regretful now that they're only getting 5% of the back end. I, I don't know. I think, um, I mean, the reality ultimately was that they could have never have afforded to make the films at the budget level that they had, yeah. to, had to be made. So. I don't know whether regret's quite the right word. I don't think they ever really had a chance, ultimately, to make them. Um, five you know, five percent of a billion dollars isn't bad for no, not having set no. foot in New Zealand during the whole shoot. <laughs> I'm sure they'll be very happy with their five percent. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, Is that five percent of the gross or the net? I'm not entirely sure. I don't know. I don't know the de the detail. I've heard five percent, but I don't know how how the okay. deal the um, deal structured. Were you disappointed not to get best director last time? Uh, not really. I, uh, I kind of... We called it, didn't we? You I called mean, it? Awards. I, I, just, I awards. just don't... I, I found that the awards ultimately last year were in a very, a very political sort of... I, I just found myself in the middle of, of, of this kind of these warring factions and the politics of the Oscars I, I, I found to be very interesting. And um, because I had to come around, I, you know, they sent me once. Once the nominations were out, and we were kind of like there was a sense, right? We're all fighting for yeah. the for the Oscar, and I had to come and do a three week um, tour around the states to like, you know, to promote myself and promote the the movie. And and if we got nominated again this year, I swore to myself that I'd never do that again because uh, I kind of think the the Oscars are a very simple system where. You know, a very pure system where you, there's five thousand people that vote, and they simply vote for the movies that they like the best in any given year, and that should be ba that should be where it starts and finishes. It's very simple, and um, that's fine. And whatever film gets the most votes, or whatever actor gets the most votes, that's that's the winner. But the idea of of the way that people start campaigning for votes, like you're a politician, I, I found to be a bit a bit odd. So I I promised myself I'd never get involved in it again. In making this movie. Um you obviously made a ton of choices. You made choices about casting, choices about 
uh, a lot of stuff yeah. and choices about narration and voices and a lot. Yeah. What was the su most surprising choice you had to make, the most difficult choice you had to make in, in all that you have had to do, you know, that turned out to be, you know, extraordinarily satisfying <laughs> in the end? Well, I guess the, um, one, of the, one of the key choices that we made very early on was that we wanted to make these films feel historical and feel real because they were, they were fantasy films, which fantasy for a lot of people means, you know, fairy tale, children's mm -hmm. stories, right. all that sort of stuff. Um, and fantasy movies of the past tend to have an artificial kind of feel to them. They tend to be over-designed and glossy and bright and gaudy and... And, and, and unreal, basically. Um, you know, fantasy means unreal. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, well, no, let's do fantasy means real. Let's say that these are historical. Let's say that, that the events of the Lord of the Rings took place on Earth six or 7,000 years ago, as Tolkien himself imagined, and that these, these have a, a reality to them. And whether you're an elf or a wizard or a hobbit or a human, you, you're, you're playing your character with integrity, you're existing in the moment that, you know, that the story is, is, is the forces of the story are upon you, you're making decisions based on who you are. Anyway, there's nothing sort of artificial about any of it. It's, it, it, it has a certain grittiness. And um, that was, I think, a key decision we made right at the beginning, which I feel very happy with, mm. um, because I think it's given the films a, a quality which sort of sets them apart from other fantasy movies that we're, we've been seen in the past. Do you share the feeling that the third <clears throat> is the best? Having seen the first and the second movie, I, I wouldn't even dare to guess <laughs> what I would feel, much less what it's going to look like. I don't you have no idea what it's going to look like. No, and I was you there, know. but I don't know. He, <laughs> Peter Jackson is uh, full of surprises, and I think it's a good thing. He doesn't... Um, I mean, I, I am in agreement with the way of working that I think he believes in, which is never, it's not over till it's over, never quit trying to improve what you're doing until it's on the screen and people are seeing it. And, and because of that, you know, he's full of surprises and I'm sure the third one will be, you know, a surprise. It makes it more fun to go to the movies, more interesting. So. Sure. All right, but let me just end with this. Did, was there any, any significant disagreements on the, about this film in terms of where it should go? I mean, did you have agonizing choices to make about that or did it just lay itself out directly from the uh, book? This was a tough film. I mean, this, the post-production on this film has been very, very difficult. It, it's, it's, been, it's difficult because it, it's, it's, structured in a, it's, it's structured in a way that's actually quite hard to put together as a filmmaker where you have three storylines because our characters have, at the end of the first film, they, our group of characters divided into, into, and went their separate ways. So you have three different storylines following different characters all progressing at the same time. And that makes the editing of the film and the assembly of the film very intricate and very difficult you, because you, you, you're trying to keep each storyline alive and keep the tension going and then when you cut to the next group of characters for a while you don't want the energy to drop out of the group you've just left and you want to be able to stick with them and then have the energy and the energy build when you go back to them again and doing that through three different storylines is, is hard so this I, I did find the post-production on this film to be much much harder than the first film okay. thank you thank you good to have you Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. Peter Jackson, the pride of New Zealand, the film director who has spent eight years of his life making Lord of the Rings, joins me for a conversation about the making of the movie. It has led to a number of Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture and Best Director. I am pleased to have Peter Jackson with me in Los Angeles. Tell me this. 
three films completed. Mm -hmm. Oscar nomination, Golden Globe winner. Mm -hmm. How do you feel? How is this? What does all this mean <laughs> for Peter Jackson? Uh, well, I sort of I, I feel like I'm in the middle of something that's going to be once in a lifetime. I mean, I keep every day I keep realizing, you know, enjoy it, enjoy it, because this is probably never going to happen again. And so I am trying to enjoy it. I'm, I'm also, you know, I'm also um, in pre-production on our next movie now, King Kong. Kong. Yeah, so I'm kind of eager. I've got itchy fingers to want to get stuck into that. That's well. interesting because that was a project you were thinking about before you launched into yeah. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. It says we've come back to King Kong. We, uh, it was my favorite movie. It is my favorite movie, and influenced you as a kid. Loved it. Yeah, I just loved the. Um, the escapism and, and, and the adventure, and I love the emotional story. Where, you know, you cry when Kong falls off the Empire State Building. So I, um, I, I wanted to do Kong about um, seven or eight years ago, and we started working on it with Universal for about six or eight months, and then they pulled the plug on Kong. They just stopped it. It was one of those kind of like really uh, terrible, terrible days when we had to go in and tell everybody that was working because we were in pre-production um, that it wasn't happening anymore. But fortunately, at that time, we had Lord of the Rings kind of in the wings. Um, Harvey Weinstein was was working at getting us the rights. And we were going to, supposed to be doing Kong first, but it, as it was, we were able to switch on onto Lord of the Rings. And of course, now we've learned so much from Lord of the Rings that we're rewriting our Kong script. We've thrown our old script right out the door and we're rewriting it all, and it's now going to be a lot better film. So, so I mean, fate, I, I really believe in fate. Fate's been kind to us. Because you had once said that after Lord of the Rings, you would never again do anything this big. No. And it doesn't get any bigger than this. No. No. But you're doing something that's big, that's also fantasy, that's also spectacle. Mm. So you jump from the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> I did that on purpose. Well, why, well the, the main reason is because I love King Kong and Universal gave us an opportunity now after Lord of the Rings to go back to King Kong, which which I wanted to do because it was very much unfinished business. It's a, it's a, a film I'd love to make. Um, and we also thought that straight after Lord of the Rings was the best time because it's effectively in the infrastructure that we have in New Zealand that becomes like a fourth Lord of the Rings film because everybody can just go straight into Kong and we don't have to lose yeah. lose anyone. We have such a great team down there. But if we started so doing a smaller... in New Zealand too? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we've set up, we've set up studios, special effects places, sound mixing stages. I mean, and we've got it all down there at the moment. So, this is a, I mean, Kong is a great project. My guess is that that uh, when Universal came and said, "Now we're ready to do King Kong," mm. now that you've done Lord of the Rings, mm. to get Peter, mm. it's a very different story now. In terms of Lord of the Rings, has been so phenomenally successful mm. that to have you on the project is very different than having you on the project before Lord of the Rings. Well, not really. I mean, I didn't have to think about it particularly. I mean, when they said, were you interested in doing King Kong? I said, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was actually that quick. I, we didn't really play any funny games with them. I mean, I, I, it is a film I want to make. I've wanted to make, make it for years. I actually tried to make King Kong when I, when I was about um, 10 or 11 years old. I, I, I've got at home in New Zealand, I've got a cardboard model I made at the top of the Empire State Building, and I have a rubber King Kong who now is, like, decomposing quite badly. Yeah. I, I got my mother's fur coat, um, and I, I trimmed off all the hair with scissors, and I glued it just, just little <laughs> clumps at a time onto this rubber King Kong. And I, I started doing some animated shots of King Kong on the Empire State Building, and I thought, I mean, I had this grandiose idea when I was 10 years old that I'd remake 
calm the super eight in my in my bedroom. <laughs> and so I hardly got anything done. But uh, so I've I spent a long hell dream away. Boy, it really is part of your legend now that when you were eight years old, you got that Super 8 camera. Yeah. And you started making movies immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we got it for, you know, home movie use for family and for weddings and for holidays. But uh, I just loved, uh, I, I loved um, the fact that, because I've been making models I, I, ever since I was five or six years old, I've been making little cardboard models of spaceships and things and monsters, rubber monsters, and I loved the idea that I could now get my little camera and I could film them and make up stories and uh, and tell stories. And then, because I, I originally wanted to do special effects, that was what my real dream was, and um, King Kong, seeing that movie when I was nine years old, also fueled this desire to want to do effects. And then, as I started filming all my little effects and I went through my teenage years, I started to become more interested in stories and characters and and thinking about the camera angles. And I slowly realized that being a director and a writer was really what, what my love was. Everybody who's been associated with Lord of the Rings, the three chapters yeah. that you tell, says to me, what made this possible was Peter's passion. Yeah. That you brought together people, you created a family in your own home country, New Zealand. Uh, you worked harder than anybody else. Uh, it took you eight or nine years. Tell me about that. <laughs> the passion. The passion. And the sense of what you knew you had to do. I mean, it's unbelievable. Well, I'm... I'm nine years out of yeah, a person's life. Yeah, yeah. Your parents died during this experience. Mm -hmm. You know, you're older. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a big chunk of your life. Yeah. Um, I just woke up every morning loving what I was doing. <laughs> I mean, I'm still a kid. I'm still a kid with a camera. I haven't changed. And I'm one of those very, very fortunate people that get to to do their hobby as a profession. And I, I, my hobby is filmmaking. Um, and I love what I'm doing. And Lord of the Rings is such a great story. You get inspired by the story that you're telling and... You know, the experience of reading the book is just, a, the book's so imaginative and it, and it immediately puts images in your mind of what a movie could be like. I mean, I think any good novel probably does that, that, that you, you're you're running your own private movie inside your head when you read the book. When you read it, and you were thinking of... I was thinking someone else was going to make the movie because I read it when I was 17. I never, ever dreamt that I'd do it. I, I read it and thought, wow, this will, this will be pretty good, a cool film when somebody makes it. <laughs> and I was, and, and I, you know, when you're 17 years old and I wasn't a professional filmmaker then, I was actually a photo engraver at a, at a newspaper. Um, and, you know, I, I, I never dreamt that I'd be doing it. I mean, you know, I, I can't say that I read it and said, well, one day well, I will make this film because it wasn't like that. I, I just thought somebody else would make it. And it wasn't, it was like a passing of 17 or 18 years. Why had it never by. been made? I mean, Saul Zanitz, I think, owned it. On yeah, the right yeah, side, he didn't have the English patient, which he mm -hmm. had to be rescued, or, in fact, you know, Harvey mm -hmm. came in to help him yes. finance the English patient, yes. and therefore yes. they had some obligation back and forth between the two of them. Yeah, well, Saul had the rights, and he'd made the animated film, um, the animated version of Lord of the Rings, which was the only way that people could conceive of doing it 20 years ago. Uh, it, it, I mean, it hadn't been made because you, you, there was no way that you could put on film everything that Tolkien was describing. And with something, with a, with a title and a property like Lord of the Rings, I think you really have to be very careful that you don't make a disappointing film because so many people are, are passionate about the book. And if you're, if you're naming something Lord of the Rings, you've got a responsibility 
to deliver something that, that's deserving of that title. And you, you couldn't do it before the computer technology came in a few years ago. It just couldn't be done. How did you approach taking liberties with the story? You added characters and the women in Lord of the Other Rings. There's, I mean, there's some female characters, but they're not that. They're not what Tolkien's really yeah, interested. Yeah, in. I think they're noted in the appendices, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Eowyn, uh, you know, the Miranda Otto character is obviously a key character in the books, and, and so we pretty much did the same. But we we, we adapted her, her character pretty, pretty faithfully. Um, we. I mean, the way that we approached the screenwriting, because that was the real nightmare of this project. I mean, the script writing was the hardest thing that, that, that we ever did in, in the film. Now, was that your wife? It was Fran Walsh and Philip Boynes and myself, yeah. And it was um, just the decisions that we had to make and the way that we told the story. We, we, we First of all, we stripped it down to the bare spine of the story. We said, okay, this is about a little hobbit called Frodo Baggins who yeah. takes a ring and throws it in the <laughs> volcano yes. at the end. Yeah. Everything that is not to do with Frodo taking the ring will lose. So that 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 because Tolkien obviously went on off on tangents in all directions. So that sort of got rid of a lot of um, material that wasn't connected. And then we had to we had to shape it into three movies, which was kind of hard because we we wanted I really wanted each film to obviously be a enjoyable film by itself because they were being released one year apart. There was no you know when the first film came out, it was just the first film. But I also knew that this moment would arrive, which we're here today, where the three of them would exist and in people's minds they'd blend into one long story. So I wanted that to also work. So we, we had to sort of shape the, the arcs of the story individually for three movies and then as a, as a much greater kind of 10-hour um, or 11-hour long piece at the end. Um, we, we made up a lot of scenes. We, if, if something wasn't in the book that we needed, we felt we needed, like there's a, there's a key sequence in The Return of the King where um, where we just wanted to have a moment of real conflict between Frodo and Sam that Gollum creates. And so there's a moment that, that Frodo tells Sam to go home. He's, he, he's, Sam has been helping Frodo all this way. And Frodo says, I don't need you anymore, Sam. I don't want you just go. And, and that's not in the book, that scene. We, we, we felt we wanted to have that moment in the story. So, we, you know, if it wasn't there, we, we created it. We, we, also, um, we also felt that we were making the films for people that read the books 10 years ago, not, not 10 weeks ago. So we thought we must make sure everything that somebody remembers from the experience of reading this book a few years ago, okay, we wanted sure to. It. So, we wanted somebody who read it ten years ago, and somebody who read it. The, you, your, your memory yeah. of the detail has gone. So, yeah, but, but you remember key images in your mind that really jump out from the book. And you want to make sure you were sure those had all of those images. So, so everybody who has a memory of reading Lord of the Rings, you know, a few years ago, the films have the things that you remember. But we weren't we weren't interested in being faithful to to the detail because. That's not our job. I mean, our job is, is to make movies. We, we, it was our primary responsibility. And everything you needed to make a great movie was there. Oh, that's a fantastic story, yeah. And, everything. you know, and, and well, I'll tell you what the key thing with Tolkien is, and, and we did spend some time, obviously, at the very beginning thinking, okay, we're making these films. What What is it about the books that people have loved for 40, 50 years? Because there's a secret to it. You know, there, there's like a key to it, and we, and we wanted to know what that key was. And... And, and the one thing that we realised is that even though Tolkien has the battles and he has the monsters and he has everything kind of all the all the fantastical elements, 
what you love, what, what people love about those books and what draws them back to read them over and over again are the characters. It, it, it's the characters. It's the hobbits. It's the courage. It's the bravery, friendship. It's the characters. And so that gave us a real strong um, sense at the very beginning that we had to make our film. We had to, we had to balance the films and weight them to the wards of characters. And just to make sure the presence of the characters was central yeah. to the storytelling. Yeah, not allowing, not getting carried away by all this incredible trickery and, and, and these visuals that we had, just just always coming back to those characters. And, and we we wanted to try to have the films retain that same balance of the books. We didn't want to skew it in a, in a different way to what Tolkien did. Lots of people want to read into Tolkien and now you everything into this. Yeah. I mean, it is, some people say, a defense of Western civilization. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they look in terms of conflict, whether it's the Iraqi war and, and invasions and this yeah. and that. Do you see any of that? Well, well, I mean, you can if you choose to. I think that's one of the great things about cinema is that people are allowed, you know, should be allowed to interpret whatever they want. But I don't think Tolkien was... was um, Tolkien wasn't writing about the contemporary political situations. Obviously, he wrote the books, he wrote The Lord of the Rings uh, from the late 30s into the, into the late 40s. I mean, he wrote the books through World War II, but even then I don't think he was really writing about World War II. Right. Um, it's timeless. You know, his themes are not, they're not um, politically based. They're, they're, they're you know, their themes. But Shakespeare's timeless too, and he did write about Oh, well, I think everybody writes about their life experience. I mean, Tolkien, Tolkien as an author was obviously reflecting the person he was and, and the person you are is based on experiences. And there's no, doubt that, there's no doubt that some of the things that Tolkien was writing were based on his experiences in the trenches in the, the First World War. Um, he saw all of his... He, he saw all but, all but one of his um, childhood friends die in, in the First World War, people he'd gone to school with. Um, he knew what it was like to return home from war, um, to have gone through this horrific experience and to come home and not to be able to talk about it, not to be able to, you can't talk to your wife or your children about what you experienced. This is not, not appropriate. They don't understand and they never will. And, and that was actually a real clue to us about how to end the return of the king because we wanted, once the ring was destroyed, I really wanted to have Frodo and the Hobbit's homecoming um, and their experience of going back to their homeland to, to reflect what it would be like to come back from a war. Because I knew that, I, I felt very strongly that that's what Tolkien had in his mind from his own life experience. What was the most emotional scene for you to film? Um, well, I, I mean, the scene where I was, <laughs> I was crying on the yeah. set, had tears in my eyes, was when um, Sam picks up Frodo onto his shoulders and says, I can't, I can't carry the ring for you Mr Frodo but I can carry you and um, we shot that on the side of a volcano in New Zealand a real volcano an actual active volcano and it was at the end of the day and it was one of those situations where the light was kind of going down and we, were, we had to move quite quickly and we only got three takes we only we shot the, the entire sequence of Sam cradling Frodo um, in three three takes and I couldn't I didn't even have time to shoot different angles on Sean Elijah so I had to have one camera one camera pointing at, at Elijah lying on the ground being cradled, and I had to have another camera at the same time pointing at Sam because uh, uh, um, so, I was just running out of time, and we got three takes. And by the third take, they, the guys had delivered the goods, and I, I had tears down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This not only has your passion, but it was an emotional commitment that was... Mm. It's, it's an emotional commitment because you it consumes your life, and... Um, 
it's such an intense experience to make a movie. You, you literally, I mean, you don't have a, a life really. And Fran and I just tried to, um, we tried to, to raise two children all the way during this process. Um, and so it was really, everything outside of the movie was focused on our kids um, because they, they needed the hours and the hours of the week that we could we, we had spare, um, we devoted it to them. You're an only child. Yep. Does that, and I'm an only child. Right. Do you think we, only children, somehow live in fantasy more that we create our own world because we have no brothers and sisters. And mm-hmm. and I grew up in a small, rural, small town. Mm-hmm. You grew up in a place that's small, not overpopulated. populated. Nine hundred people. So you create your mm-hmm. own world. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the, your imagination is something that you can exercise when you're young. And I think the more you exercise it, the bigger your imagination will get, and the more vivid. And and I think that possibly only children fall back on their imagination much more so than, than if you have a, a, a larger family. Um, because you're not, you're not playing with other kids a lot of the time. You're not interacting and, and you're not just responding to what somebody else is doing. You're obviously in a solitary world and you just think, you dream. You dream, you imagine. I mean, I spent hours and hours um, as a child just imagining movies. And I'd always imagine movies that were way too ambitious for what I could ever do, but I just get excited about them and then I would try to make something that would never be quite as good as I wanted. But you yeah, your mind your mind is like a muscle, you know, your imagination. You just the more you exercise it and, and as an only child you're forced to do that. You also lucky in that your parents supported the idea of your dream, your passion, your fantasy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could not have had more supportive no, very, very, very important. Very In important. Everyone? Very important. And as a parent now myself, I, it's, some, it's a lesson, possibly the the most potent lesson that my that, that I've gained from my parents is to support your children in whatever they want to do. I mean, my two my two parents didn't have any interest in film or drama. They were very straightforward people. They they immigrated from England to New Zealand um, after World War Two. And and I was my interests and my hobbies were just so removed from what they had experienced or what they were interested in. But they were there for me all the time, always supporting me. They they would they would buy me a new movie camera for for Christmas when I was fourteen years old. I wanted a better camera, and they would buy one for me. I didn't get a I didn't have my driver's license till I was in my twenties. Um, I was too busy making films. And I was a sort of nerdy nerdy type guy. And, um, <laughs> and so mum and dad would drive me around to, to yeah. film things in the weekends and they devoted so yeah. much of their time to, to helping me. And there's a story where she created some of the vomit that you were using for one of your... Yeah, yeah. One, of, one of my spell films, mum would make the vomit. In fact, on my second movie, Meet the Feebles, it was such a low budget that we couldn't afford a caterer, so mum would make pies and and and, um, and lasagnas and things, and she'd bring bring them in, and we'd feed the crew with with mum's cooking. Did she? I don't remember when they died. I know they both died. I think yeah. he died first. Didn't he? Dad, Dad died when we were in pre-production in '98, and then mum mum didn't quite get to see the Fellowship of the Ring, the first film. She she actually died three days before we before we finished the film. She was sort of hanging on. She had Parkinson's and and, and was very old and frail, and was sort of slowly slowly going downhill over, over the, the, a year or two. And um, she was sort of hanging on to see the movie and, and she died three days before it was finished. And we actually played it at her funeral. Uh, we, we had her funeral. I had all my relations there, all my family, um, you know, extended family. And, and, and so I took them all into a theatre 
and the afternoon of the funeral and played played the, the movie. And I said, listen, none would none would love the idea of that this was being played at her played at her funeral. That was the first ever showing of of, of the Fellowship of the Ring, the first time it ever got seen. Now that it's over, now that it's so enormously successful commercially, artistically, in terms of the judgment of your peers and all these nominations, um, what did you learn from doing it this way, from making this movie about? Would you do it the same way if you were doing it over? Or do you say, <laughs> the idea of doing it over horrifies me? <laughs> so I'm very happy to do it once. <laughs> but, um, but then the question is, if you had known how hard it was going to do, would it, would it have... Restrained you from doing it? Right? I don't know. That's a very, it's a very interesting question. That one. No, no, because look, look, I, I love being a filmmaker, yeah. and Lord of the Rings is just like what better thing yeah. to make. Um, no, no, I, I um, you, you learn. I mean, every time you step onto a film set, every day you're going to film school. Uh, you know, every day there's things to learn, and I, and, and often it's intangible. I mean, I've come out of Lord of the Rings with a huge confidence um, that I possibly didn't have going into it. And, and, and I'm in an interesting situation because back in 1996, we were making King Kong. And now in 2004, we've resumed making King Kong again. And I just remember being so overwhelmed by the logistics in 1996, being so, having endless meetings around board tables of how do we do this? How are we going to get this shot? This is a really difficult thing to do. How are we going to do it? But having gone through Lord of the Rings now, a lot of those problems have naturally been solved and they're things that we understand, the systems are in place. And the experience of, of approaching King Kong now, I mean, the, the writing is always the hardest, as it always is, to, to get that script right. But the logistical side of King Kong seems relatively simple now compared to what Lord of the Rings could do King Kong. I think, I, think, I think that applies to everybody that's been in the Lord of the Rings cast and crew, is that we've made three huge movies all at the same time, and anything we ever do in our careers, again, is in some way going to be easier than, than doing that. Yeah, you can remember that meeting when Bob Shea said, why not three? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was a, that was a, that was a moment. significant moment in time. Yeah. You knew that you could do it the way you wanted to do. Yeah, well, it was fantastic. How do you think Lord of the Rings Beyond You will change movie making? I, I, hope, it, um, I hope it inspires and influences young kids. Um, I mean, the, the greatest thing that, that I could ever imagine with Lord of the Rings would be in, in 20 or 30 years' time. Um, is to have some film, a filmmaker come up to me and say, I'm, I'm only making films because I saw Lord of the Rings when I was nine years old. I mean, I'm only making films because I saw King Kong when I was nine years old. And, and the thought that you're, you're doing something that inspires the next generation, because that's important for filmmaking. It's important to raise the bar. It's important to keep improving the standards of films because then everybody gets goes along and everybody has to lift their game. Um, you know, I... I I've, it was, it was sort of interesting because um, I, I think to some degree a lot of these films that are coming out this year and next year, like you know Troy and Alexander and um, Ridley Scott's making a big Crusader film at the moment, I'm sure they're going to in some ways, I mean, they'd be, be, certainly they're going to realise that their battle scenes have to be bigger than ours, <laughs> otherwise people will be disappointed. So it's kind of like, the, you know, but it's like this is what Spielberg did with Saving Private Ryan, I mean, that amazing D-Day beach landing. Anybody making a war film from that moment forward has a standard that they have to reach. And that's the great thing about the standard was the reality and the power yeah, of the, power the fear the, that was on that beach. Yeah, which is all to do with the skill of the filmmaking. And, and, and that standard now has influenced all war films that have been made since. 
And that's uh, you know that's the great thing about cinema is that you just it's, it's continually raising them out. You, all you the stand time. on the shoulders of people who've come yeah, before you in a significant way. Yeah. When you were making this, um, did you? Did you know, I mean, was it a film in which, because you were doing it the way you did, uh, that you knew somehow it was all coming together? Or were there moments of powerful doubt in which you <laughs> said, I, I should, why did I ever think I could do this? You never have a clue. You fly blind the whole time. I mean, you don't know. You, you, it's impossible at any point, at any point when you're doing this, whether you're script writing or whether you're in the middle of shooting on set, it's impossible to flash forward two years and get a snapshot of what the finished film is going to be like because it's so organic and there's so many people contributing to it and, and it's evolving all the time. Um, you, you only just have to keep you have to keep your standards as high as possible and just keep your fingers crossed. And there's always a, there's a horrible point where, which is the the time that you see the first assembly of the movie. So in other words, you've finished shooting and the editor has put together the shots that you've shot. He's just whack them all together and, and it's really rough and it's long and it's all over the place and there's no special effects either of course at this point it's, it's, and, and you look at that and you come away almost convinced that you've possibly made the worst film of all time Return of the King where everything comes together you have created your characters you have placed them in the position for the payoff yeah. uh, in the editing room was this the most satisfying film it was the most satisfying film, I think, in order to make. And we even even when we were shooting the three movies at the same time, the Return of the King days uh, were always the most satisfying because you have to put yourself in the headspace of that particular movie. Even though yesterday you might have shot something from Fellowship of the Ring, yeah. today's the Return of the King day, so you're on set and you've got to think of, okay, well, where are we in the story? And and, and I always like the momentum of Return of the King. I always like, as a filmmaker, the feeling that we were now the climactic forces were all coming together. And I think the actors enjoyed the Return of the King days more too because it, it seemed more emotional. So it, it, it gave them a, a much greater challenge than um, some of the earlier stuff. And, uh, yeah, I, it, it was a tough film to edit. I mean, mainly because we had so much footage. You know, well, it was three and a half hours too. Well, it was four and a half at one stage. <laughs> <laughs> and getting it down from four and a half to something, you know, we were aiming for three hours-ish yeah. and we and we couldn't quite get there. We got to 320. <laughs> and and, and that, this is our film. That is our film, yeah. yeah. Now, was that your call? Did you have director's cut so that you could deliver them? Yeah, uh, contractually, I shared I share cut. With uh, Bob Shea at New, at New Line, we share it together. But, but at Bob, this stage, Bob's, we all Bob's been fine. He he always looks at the various versions as we're cutting them, gives us notes, and um, you know we, we take from the notes what we want. But they're often very very useful. We don't preview the, our, our movies, so we don't have a public preview. So you don't exactly you don't you don't, you don't go to some focus group and say no. see how the audience reacts. No. So the notes from the studio, from Bob and from Mark Odeski and, and other people, are actually quite important to us because they are the only feedback that we we literally get. So we take um, heed of what, what they say, and um, and you end up just it's it's your instincts. It just becomes a very instinctive thing, and also you 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 end up you end up just making the film that you want to watch. You know, it actually, it's quite selfish at the end. It's quite self-indulgent because you stop, you, and I think it's really unhealthy to sudden, to think that you're making this film for other people because you can't second-guess what other people want. And I don't think that's a good approach. Um, you, you just end up falling back on yourself. And what, what version of Return of the King would I 
think was cool. You know, that's what you base all your all your decisions on. What's been the most surprising joy of the casting? Well, I mean, I, I for me the I mean the most the greatest experience is just having all these new friends. Yeah, <laughs> family. It, it was family. It was fantastic. And you, you know, you turn up on the first day of shooting, you're with strangers, and you never met these people before. And at the end of it, you're just close friends, and uh, it's sad to feel it's come to an end from that point of view. But after what, I, nine years, uh, well, with the yeah, actors, it's been the last five years, five really. Years. We've, we've been shooting, um, but you know, I just hope we can work together again. And we know we're always going to be friends. But um, and I also the the thing that the actors contributed to the project, which was the most important thing, was to give it a sense of reality that none of them, none of them w was coming to work thinking we're making fantasy we can be a little bit bigger than life we can you know we we, we, we don't have to treat this seriously it, 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 everybody's performance was based on reality on, on us on a strength of real emotion and that's that was just the perfect way to approach this film is there's a real feeling of, of a sense of reality that the no matter what the world is and no matter what the visuals are every character in these films believes utterly in the moment that they're that, that they're living your first hire, uh, Elijah was first. Elijah was, he was early on. I mean, Elijah, um, Elijah cast himself in the film, really. I'm showing you this documentary. Yeah, that tape just showed up in the mail. That was from Elijah Wood, who I never would have considered putting in the movie, to be quite honest. This is one of the great stories of casting. Yeah, well, we were in London. We thought the little, uh, we thought that Frodo should be an English actor, um, because that's the nature of the character. So we, we'd seen about 200 young English actors, and then in the casting office, um, this brown package shows up, and it was a VHS tape from Elijah Wood, who I'd never actually seen an Elijah Wood movie, even though I'm, I know he's been in films <laughs> yes. since he was a kid. So I didn't have a, a great image of what he looked like, and um, Fran said, oh, we actually, Elijah's got a really interesting face, we should, we should put the tape in. Um, otherwise, I might not have even put the tape in. Because we didn't really think we would we would we would, we would go that way. And uh, Elijah had um, Elijah had heard we were we were auditioning, but we weren't going to come to Los Angeles. Um, so he had rented some costumes, some sort of hobbity costumes, gone up in the woods behind his house with a friend with a VHS camera, um, and he'd filmed himself doing some passages from the book, you know, Frodo dialogue from the book. And he, we looked at this, and that that moment, that 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 second that we saw it, it was like, my God, he's great. And he he that it was his. He did it himself. <laughs> and he delivered. Yeah, oh, he's fantastic. Yeah. And he is Serene. Serene McKellen. Serene McKellen almost wasn't he? We we met with him and we wanted him to be Gandalf. He'd never read the books, and so he he was at a disadvantage because we were having. It's to... Surprising, he'd never read the books. It's no, nice. he's a yeah. That's right. But anyway, he hadn't. And he, and then we had all sorts of trouble with with um, casting Ian because he was doing X Men, the original X Men, and uh, and it was one of those fortuitous things because Ian actually called us after trying to figure out because X Men was shooting it and it was going to run into the beginning of the Lord of the Rings shoot, it was going to overlap, and and we couldn't we couldn't get Ian away from X Men, and, and therefore we weren't going to be able to use him. We were going to have to start because we were we had, we had built sets. And we planned our shoot to start with Gandalf scenes at the very beginning, and then so Ian had to Ian phoned me one day and said, "Listen, Peter, I just can't do do your film. I'm sorry, I'd love to do it, but I can't." And so this was a disastrous thing. And um, the following day, he went to a restaurant in London and he bumped into Bob Shea at a restaurant in London. Another fate 
uh, fate or dealing as a kind hand. And Ian said, oh, I'm sorry, Bob, I've had to pass on, on, on your film. And, and Bob said, but we want you, we want you. We, how do we make you do it? And, and, and Ian said, well, I can't, the first three months of Lord of the Rings, I can't, I can't do, do it because I'm going to be doing, doing, doing X-Men. I'm going to miss that first three months. And so Bob Shea called us up and said, listen, whatever it costs, whatever you want to do, figure out shooting something else for the first three months and then having Gandalf join the team. And that way we can have Ian. And so Bob made it happen. He, he wanted Ian so badly. And that restaurant meeting was kind of the best thing that could have happened. Did each of these actors, Sean, Andy, Ian, Bigo, Elijah, I'm forgetting, Liv, did they create the characters they, you had in your mind? Because each of them created, they found a way. You know, you gave them wigs and you gave them a whole lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you gave them a script that had been fought through. Uh, but out of that, a director gives an actor direction, mm-hmm. but an actor is responsible for mm-hmm. giving back to you your yeah. vision in a way that goes beyond your vision. Yeah, no, sure. That was, and that what that did that did happen. I mean, they they all they all ended up portraying the characters in a way that was it was vivid and vibrant and goes beyond what you imagine at the beginning. Um, we we wanted we wanted our characters to feel like they stepped out of the pages of the book, and that's really why we didn't want to cast you know superstars in the roles because they come with previous baggage. We we wanted people that that read Lord of the Rings and loved Lord of the Rings to feel that they had come. Out of the book. I mean, it's why we we didn't we didn't even want Ian McKellen to look like Ian McKellen. I mean, we gave him a false nose Ian, in the movies. Ian's wearing a Ian's wearing a rubber nose to try to give him more of a Gandalf sort of look. Um, and we you know we just wanted that feeling of authenticity. We wanted to go beyond being actors, and that's the most important standard that you you applied here. Is it how do we create maintain authenticity? Yeah, I mean authenticity. It, it starts with you wanting to generate huge emotion with the characters. Like, for instance, in Return of the King, when audiences are seeing the movie and some people are crying and, and they're really investing in the characters, th- that's the end result. That's what you want. But in order to achieve that, that in order to, to have people that committed to the movie that, that, that it causes them to cry, you, you have to make everything real before that. The world that the movie is set in has to be real. You know, Middle Earth has to feel like an authentic place the costumes have to feel real they can't feel fake if, if anything feels fake along the way you're not going to get that those tears at the end you just won't get it because people will not be believing they won't in think what they're, they're seeing the book no you spend a lot of time i think maybe not on the dvds mm. i mean these dvds have everything mm. they have documentaries mm. they have appendices they have Peter introducing what's in the DVDs. Why do you so carefully spend so much time? You've made the movie. Yeah, I, I love it. I love DVDs. I, I I'm a big DVD fan. I love collecting other people's DVDs, <laughs> and so the um, the fun of doing your own is just just it's really cool. It's uh, and I also. I mean the thing with our DVDs, which possibly you know I wouldn't do for any other films. Is that because it because it's Lord of the Rings, 
which has such a huge fan base. I mean, these these extended DVDs are made just for fans. I mean, I'm not expecting yeah, any, anybody yeah. that doesn't really yeah. interested in Lord of the Rings to, to, to ever buy them. But you either have to be a serious fan of Tolkien, or you have to be a serious fan of movie making. Yeah, and, and and so we have you know like like any movie, you shoot your film and you end up with footage that you don't use. And in our case, we've had just about an hour for each of the movies that we haven't put in, but that we filmed. Now, to me, that's that hour represents a legitimate adaptation of Tolkien's work. I mean, because we, we wrote, we scripted that hour's worth of footage that didn't make it into the film. We scripted that at the beginning as part of us adapting the books, and it's all material from the books. It's, it's, it's scenes with characters. It's things that we ultimately didn't think we needed in order to try to get the length of these films down. But nonetheless, they do form part of the greater adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. And if it wasn't Lord of the Rings, I probably wouldn't do it. But I just felt that that these scenes are perfectly good scenes. I mean, they're not like our worst scenes. Um, they're, they're sometimes, they're amongst our best scenes that for some reason we just don't now want to put in. Through the DVD. And I just felt that we should we should put this material back in so that fans who want to see a more fleshed out um, adaptation of Lord of the Rings um, can, can do that. As a director, have you changed because of this? Um, did you, you shoot a lot of scenes. I mean, you have a reputation as a guy who knows what he wants, and he he, he has to feel it. And in other words, it may be shot, and you may not like it, and not know why you don't like it. It just didn't get to what you want, and that's a feeling rather than. Yeah, I mean, I you know you you either know exactly what you want, or you pretend that you know what you want when you walk on set, uh, you know, I mean, th there were many days walking on set where I, especially towards the end of the shoot when I was getting very tired, because I, you know, it was a long shoot, it was f f 15 months of shooting, and um, exhaustion was certainly setting in towards the end, and I, 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 I some days I'd, I'd turn up on set, and, and, I, and I would just be going, oh my God, I, how do I make this good, how, how do I, and I'd be struggling, because my imagination was kind of drying up, it was like shriveling with exhaustion, and, and at that point, I was really um, relying on the actors to do it for me because I, I it, you know, I, I can figure out where to put a camera. It may not be the most imaginative camera angle because I'm now unable to do that, but I would then rely upon the actors to deliver the goods, and they were always there for me. I mean, that's why I, it was such a great family atmosphere. As I think sometimes they even sense when I was exhausted, and, and they would you know, help you put you on their shoulders yeah, and take it through yeah, the end of the scene. Sure, yeah. Uh, What's the working relationship between you and Freya? Uh, the working relationship is um, its just really good. It's one of those great relationships where we can say anything to each other now. There's no boundaries, which is, which is good. It's honest, and, and, and it's, and it's um, genuine, and it's full of trust. I mean, Fran, I, I'm lucky in the sense that Fran and I have such similar sensibilities both as people, but also the fact that we're there at the very beginning writing these scripts. And so by the time we've gone through that process, we, we both of us know exactly what we're trying to achieve. We know why we wrote the scene. We know what the, the motivation is for that scene being in the movie. And, um, I mean, Fran would direct some scenes of, of, of Lord of the Rings. I mean, I was um, there were certainly moments when I was falling behind schedule because we had a really, we couldn't go o over... Um, schedule like in any film it's a disaster if you do that from a budget point of view and there'd be some days where you know you, you'd, you'd have a certain amount of that you have to shoot that week and by Thursday 
I'd be realising I'm not going to get through it all. And, and I'd say to Fran, listen, we've got we've got a spare camera, and we can we can we can strip off some of our crew to put a little little guerrilla team together, and and could you go and shoot a scene for me? And um, she 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 shot some stuff. She shot um, the scene in the two towers where Gollum and Schmeagel talk to each other. That was something that Fran shot, and she actually wrote that um, because she felt we looked at the first edit of the two towers, and we felt we didn't have a scene where where um, we really sold that schizophrenic kind of thing with Gollum and Schmeagel. We had it, we had it there, but it wasn't really nailed properly. And, and so she sat down one night at home and she wrote this scene where he talks to himself. And I said, well, this is a great scene, but I don't know how we're going to shoot it because there's no way I, I can fit it into the schedule I've got. Um, and and she, she, so we, we found a way for her, her to shoot it. And so she she shot that one, and so it, it's it's a great support for me. It's it's just it's like another, you know. People often say to me, um, "Oh, well, wouldn't it be great if you could clone yourself?" You know, and we could be. But in a sense, I don't have to because I've got Fran, <laughs> and, it, and it, it it doesn't affect the marriage at all, except enhance it. It's it, it helps it. I I couldn't imagine what the experience of doing Lord of the Rings would have been like if I had a partner who didn't really understand what, well, it wasn't invested in, in what we were doing, but also didn't understand the stresses involved. Because, you know, you'd come home in the evening, rung out because of something that had happened. And I, I think a lot of marriages don't survive in the movie industry on that basis that, that, that it's, that one world is so extreme in its pressure and its, and its tension. And then if the partner doesn't work in the film industry, it's just hard to, to reconcile the two together. So I think actually having Fran working on the films is, is ultimately a very strong thing for our family. Did the kids want to have a role? Yeah, I mean, the kids have been in all three films. Yeah, they've grown up with these films. I mean, they were born at the very beginning, seven or eight years ago. I mean, our kids are seven and eight. And, um, and they and now that everything in their entire life has revolved around mummy and daddy doing <laughs> Lord of the Rings, and now we're finally saying to them, Lord of the Rings is over now. Now we'll have a discussion about King Kong. <laughs> but but yeah, no, it's important for the kids. We, we've always tried to take the kids to work if we're working on a Saturday, you know, or, or a Sunday. We try to bring them to where they sit on the set. I mean, Billy's great at sitting there playing Game Boy or something. You know, you find film, they find films that's very boring. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. but, uh, but the one thing with, with my kids that made me laugh was um, and, and I thought God this really this shows that our kids do, do have a, you know, a healthy view of what the film is really because they have their little action figures you know the little toys um, that like most kids have they, they love playing with those toys except um, normally a, a kid would say okay and Arwen's galloping on her horse and they'd have the, the horse there and, and Aragorn comes over and she jumps off and all this and, and, but our kids say, and, and here comes Liv, and Vigo's coming up, and, and Liv's jumping off the horse. They, they use the actors' real names when they're playing with the toys <laughs> yeah. rather, rather than the characters' names. <laughs> Speaking of the actors, um, you got an Academy, you got a Golden Globe, you received the Golden Globe for Best Director, the Picture One for Best Picture. Uh, you've got those nominations for the Academy Award. The actors aren't nominated. No, no. No, I, I think it's um, well, yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, obviously, the, the a lot of great actors were nominated this time. Great actors nominated, so it's a, co it's a competition, unfortunately. It's one of those situations where you're, you know, film, filmmakers and actors are forced into this sort of this competitive environment. Um, 
Yeah, I, I was disappointed. Um, I was disappointed. I think particularly for Sean Aston, who who I think you know had done the most incredible performance of his career. Um, but you know, I, I all around the world, Lord of the Rings is playing in cinemas at the moment. Return of the King, and, and Sean's making people cry every day. What is it about his character? And so I just think that's that's his art, that's his craft. You know, it's not it's not about the awards really. Andy really creative. Gollum is. Gollum, yeah, well, Gollum's interesting. His I voiced it. Yeah, I mean, Andy did such an incredible job at creating this character. Obviously, you know, animators helped and, and, and CG people, but that, contrib- that, that that acting contribution on and from from Andy towards that character is something that is quite unique. And you know, it's not surprising that um, from an award point of view and a nomination point of view, it's been very hard to sure. to to categorise what. That contribution actually is, and where it goes in. Um, you know, last year for Two Towers, we won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects, and, and I think, you know, a substantial amount of that was, was people honouring the achievement of, 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 of Gollum. And so, from that point of view, um, that, that was Andy was, 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 was re- rewarded in that way. Why is it important to you, this Oscar business? Well, I um, I mean, an Oscar is obviously, you know, it's it's a tradition of Hollywood going back to 1927. I mean, Wings was the first movie, silent movie that won won the first Oscar. And so, as a as a filmmaker, even as a little kid in New Zealand, you know, Oscars mean something. And I always it used to watch them on TV. It's a judgment of your peers, and it's a sort of it's a um, it, it's something that's just a traditional thing in the film industry. It's not an award that's been born out of a, out of a TV show, or or um, groups of people wanting to sort of you know get publicity somehow. This is traditional old Hollywood, and obviously it's a, it's a huge achievement. I mean, the nominations we're incredibly proud about. I mean, the Oscars are so are, are, are so prestigious in a way, and 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 the fact that five thousand people are voting for them, that the nominations themselves are almost as good as an award. I mean, they're 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 a huge honor. The notion that you'll never do anything as big as this before, probably, mm-hmm. uh, that you've spent the, you're about forty, I assume, forty-two, yeah, uh, that you have spent a good eight, nine, ten years of your life mm-hmm. thinking about this and doing this, mm-hmm. um, and that it may be your best work. Mm-hmm. That your best work may be behind you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't think I'm ever going to do anything as big as this. I don't think I'm going to do anything that 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 gets this incredible swell of sort of public interest because we we're riding obviously in this sort of experience, unique experience of having shot three films at the same time, releasing them one year apart. So there's this incredible momentum. That is sort of affecting everything, um, and that's probably never going to happen again. Uh, it's just you know one film at a time from this point on, and that's that's good. For Can me. you think of no other great epic that you would say that's for me? The story is so powerful. Not not that I'm willing to give another seven years. Not at the moment, no. Something may something may I may get to go to a bookstore tomorrow and, and find something I like, but um not, not at the moment, no. But you know, the hard the, the hard thing that when you're a filmmaker, the, the the thing that is the most difficult thing which does not go away after Lord of the Rings, um, is to make a good film. That I- anything you attempt to make is gonna be either good, bad or somewhere in the middle. And you're always horrified that you're going to make a bad film. You're always hoping you're going to make a good film. And 
that's what I'm just going to continue to do. I'll, I'll continue making films about things that interest me and try to make the best possible films I can. You set out to get inside Torkin's head, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we wanted, wanted to know what his... We, we wanted to make films that he would like. You know, we wanted to make them for the same reasons that he wrote the book. We wanted we wanted the films to to care about the things that he cared about. You know, we didn't we, we particularly didn't want to put any of our own baggage into the film. Because people say, in part, because it's such a achievement, this is Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Well, it's, an, it's an interpretation. It's somebody else taking the Lord of the Rings and saying and being a fan i mean it's it's, it's, a, it's a fan making a movie there's no way you can watch this movie and not say peter jackson is a huge fan no i mean I, any filmmaker in the world would make a completely different film i mean you know you could take five or six filmmakers give them lord of the rings to make and it would be fascinating to see what uh, you know but they'll, they'll all be different films because so so sure this is this is this is me as a fan reading the book um, as you read the book, you have this, this, these images in your head of what things look like, which are your private images, not shared with anyone else. There, there, you have a sense of the story of the excitement. You can almost hear a kind of music playing. I mean, I can when I read a book. You, you get swept away, and you know, you just get to be this incredibly lucky person who somehow gets this money to go out and and, and try to transfer what's in your head as a result of reading the book and, and put it onto screen. So suddenly, everybody else is looking at the movie, and it may not be it may not be what was in their head, but they're sort of getting a little idea of what's in my head and my collaborator, the collaborators who have who have input. It's like we the, people are looking at somebody else's imaginative um, uh, vision of what Lord of the Rings is to, is to them. And Lord of the Rings is to you. It's just it's a wonderful escapist piece of entertainment. It goes back to what I liked about King Kong. Yeah, or are we all reading too much into it? It's not just a bit of escapist entertainment. I mean, we're, you're, I mean, there's all this sort of the history of. Yeah. Well, Tolkien. I mean, Tolkien was passionate. passionate. He was passionate about a lot of things. I mean, Tolkien was a fairly. By all accounts, a fairly irritable old yeah. professor who got annoyed about things, and I actually think a lot of the motivation for putting stuff yeah. in Lord of the Rings was his annoyance. And he was a, he he hated the idea that the English countryside had been chopped down, chopped down, forests had been cut down, factories had been built in the industrial age. He hated the idea that that um, that satellite towns were built around the factories, all these terraced housing, and the workers were enslaved to the, to the factory. And every morning you went in, and every night you came out, and that was your life. And and that that is a, a lot of what Lord of the Rings is about. Is about his hatred of enslavement of, of of everybody serving the machine. He thought the internal combustion engine was the greatest evil that had ever been visited upon this world. That we sit, even we sit in our car and we are slave to our car. We don't have a free will. We have to go where the car is allowed to go. We can't just wander. He he was you know he was a sort of a loveite type character and. Um, and you get a feeling that he was profoundly annoyed by a lot of things, and that that, that fueled his energy at everything. At writing. Yeah. I mean, it took him fourteen years to write this book. He was being driven by something, and I'm sure he was being driven by his passionate dislike of a lot, a lot of um, a lot of things that he'd seen visited upon the world, both natural things about enslavement to factories, wars. Um, he he put it all in the books, and so we we tried to make the films honour those themes, those passions of his. You said this, um, and you can look back on it now. The fear of failure 
is one of the most powerful creative forces at work. A director has many duties. One of them is to be calm. In an organization as big as we had with 2,000 people working over a long period of time, if the director started to unravel, the entire thing would fall apart like a house of cards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The fear of failure. The fact that you are carrying on your shoulders. Mm. Fear is a great motivator. Fear is a really good thing to have in the back of your mind. And I think um, I think when you lose fear, if you lose a, ever lose a sense of fear, you're going to lose a great motivator to push yourself because it is, it is I mean, it is fear of making a bad movie. Um, it would be, and, and obviously in this particular case, you know, we had a lot riding on it with the fact that New Line had invested in the three movies at the same time before the first one was released. So that, that failure would have been that would have been a train wreck uh, um, if the, that first movie hadn't worked. It would have been the end of a lot of careers, mine and other people's. Um, so, you know, I, I think fear is a healthy thing when you're, because otherwise, what's the alternative to fear? You know, you're overly confident, you're complacent. You sort of, somehow you don't care anymore. So, no, None I don't of those words describe Peter Jackson. No, I'm happy to be driven by fear. <laughs> Thank you. Pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Peter Jackson, director of the Academy Award-nominated film Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, also nominated for Best Director. We're in Los Angeles, California. Thank you for joining us.